When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode of the Birdshot Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt and Final Rise. On this episode of the show, we speak to author of The Orvis Guide to Upland Hunting, Reed Bryant. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 182. Welcome back to the Birdshot Podcast, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to another episode. As always, we've got a great interview coming up with our guest, who you may very well know through his writing, his books, or his podcast, Reed Bryant. We will get to our conversation with Reed shortly, but first, as always, I'd like to thank the Patreon patrons of the Birdshot Podcast. Got a few can cooler Birdshot Podcast sticker gift packs out in the mail this week to new patrons and published the first bit of bonus content for Patreon patrons, a collaboration bonus podcast episode, so to speak, with Nick Adair of the Gundog It Yourself podcast that is published and available to listen to for Patreon patrons of the Birdshot podcast. We had intended to make it a video podcast, but of course had some technical difficulties with the first attempt, but nonetheless, turned out to be a good conversation with Nick Adair and myself. We talked at length about the idea behind it, our thoughts moving forward, and of course, requested feedback and suggestions from Patreon patrons of the Birdshot podcast. So if you haven't seen that yet, check it out, patreon.com forward slash birdshot. You can sign up for as little as five bucks a month. You will not only get access to bonus content like that, you will also be eligible for monthly Patreon giveaways, which right now happens to be our preseason hunting gear extravaganza. Upcoming winners of the monthly giveaway can choose from available items that include a Final Rise vest system, 
either the Summit Series, Legacy Series, or Sidekick Series, whichever you prefer, complete Final Rise Vest System setup, a Dogtra Pathfinder 2 GPS tracking and training collar for you and your bird dog, or a pair of First Light Sawbuck brush pants. Whichever you need most, the July winner is going to have his or her choice from all three of those items, and we'll go from there into August and September. That drawing happens at the end of the month. So patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Thanks for considering that as always. All right, and a friendly reminder, you can always leave a rating and or a review for the podcast, depending on where you're listening to this. If the podcast player allows for ratings like Apple, reviews, Spotify now has star ratings for podcasts. If you could take a second to subscribe, follow the show, leave a rating or a review, that would be greatly appreciated and is helpful to the Birdshot podcast. And... We got another winner to announce the gun fitting giveaway with Dell Whitman, courtesy of Upland Gun Company. Brian B, winner of the gun fitting with Dell Whitman. He has been contacted. In fact, just a few minutes ago, I haven't heard back from him yet. Don't know where he's located, but Brian, you are the winner of the gun fitting giveaway. Apologies, we couldn't give away one to everyone that entered. But there was a bunch of you. I appreciate everybody submitting their entries and expressing their interest in the gun fitting giveaway with Dell Whitman. I was, again, impressed at how many people were interested in the gun fitting and willing to get to Traverse City, Michigan, where Dell Whitman is located. So if you were not so fortunate this time, you can always reach out to Dell and schedule a fitting of your own or keep listening to the Birdshot podcast. I'm sure we'll do something similar again in the future. Thanks to Upland Gun Company and Del Whitman for participating in that. And congrats to Brian. We'll be connecting him with Del Whitman in the next few days. All right, we're going to move into today's interview. It is a long one. Reed and I had not caught up for a little while. As evidenced by the length of our conversation today, we covered a lot of ground. I have had a copy of Reed's book, The Orvis Guide to Upland Hunting, for a couple of years, I think, and had been meaning to get to it, read it, get Reed on the podcast, Took longer than I wanted, but I got a whole pile full of books that I would love to read and reread, as I'm sure many of you out there listening do as well. But long story short, I finished the book, got in touch with Reed, and invited him onto the podcast to discuss that and more. We get into a whole bunch of stuff, talk about some of the things Reed has been up to, what he's looking forward to, and ultimately what went into and some of the things I got out of the Orvis Guide to Upland Hunting. It's a wonderful book that Reed and the team of people that worked on it clearly put a lot of thought and effort into. I would encourage anyone interested in a book of its nature to seriously check it out. You can do so at Orvis, or I think Reed mentions Amazon or even his website. Definitely one for the collection, one for the coffee table. It's full of amazing photography by Brian Grossenbacher, who Reed works with a lot. And it's a great reference book, something you can go back to and recommended reading, no doubt. Anyways, I really enjoyed catching up with Reed. I've been listening to his podcast quite a bit lately. He's had some great, great interviews. Highly encourage you to check out the Orvis Hunting and Shooting podcast. There's some excellent stuff over there for fans of the Birdshot podcast. So check that out. And before I go on any longer, we're going to get right into this interview with Reed. But in honor of our guest today, I am going to do something here on the Birdshot podcast that Reed does from time to time on his podcast, which is read a bit of his writing. If you haven't read Reed's stuff, go to his website and check out some of the stuff he has available, reedbryant.com. Reed has a way of writing that certainly appeals to me. It's the kind of writing that not only 
appeals to the way I think about bird hunting, but more so the way I feel about bird hunting. Reed's got a command of the language in that regard that is not something found in all writing, and that I appreciate. So as a lead up to my conversation with Reed, I'm going to read the last three paragraphs of his book, The Orvis Guide to Upland Hunting. Hopefully this isn't considered a spoiler alert or anything, but I think it captures the essence of the book and it gives you a look into the kind of writing you will find in this book that is certainly a how-to book, but it is a uniquely different Reed Bryant version of a how-to book. So here goes. As a bird hunter, I find meaning in something as ephemeral as changing seasons and something as actual as blood beneath my fingernails. These realities punctuate my days and years, giving me an identity far bigger and more full than my game bag. It is not hard to become poetic as a bird hunter. It may be harder, in fact, to avoid the inevitable mellowing and deepening of the identity it provides. In hunting, I find logic in a parade of days and the dogs that steal space in my bed and the evenings by the February fire where I just sit with a drink and a gun open in my lap, daydreaming out across the seasons. This is what provides me a lens through which to see the world and see myself in it. This is what I love. Tomorrow is September 1st and the start of this return to something and the ongoing passage through it. Montana will be ours, but so will the Vermont popple whips and the Dakota milo strips and the Alaska willows. I will share this with my fellow hunters. There is a universality to what I gain from being an upland hunter, a joy that is hard to describe. It is not something that comes and goes with the seasons, but it is emphatic when the light changes and the earth turns to golden and flushing birds fill my heart once more. So with that, I offer you upland hunting. It is yours for the taking, a gift to savor and to share. I warn you, though, that it will creep into your unattended moments. Gun oil will stain your furniture and bird dog puppies will steal your place on the pillow. These things, too, are wonderful. These are things of essential beauty, and I envy you the joy of discovering them. And with that read, let's welcome into the conversation and onto the Birdshot Podcast, Reed Bryant. All right, buddy, we're rolling. Welcome to the Birdshot Podcast, Reed Bryant. Thanks for joining me today, and happy Friday, buddy. Yeah, definitely. No, I, uh, I appreciate your patience. We just went through quite a rigmarole with, with my lack of technical savvy, but here I am. I hope I sound okay. So I appreciate the patience and really appreciate the chance to be, uh, to be back on with you. You're coming in loud and clear. And, uh, this was, uh, as far as technical difficulties go, I have definitely been, uh, I've caused more problems on this podcast than, than you ever will read. <laughs> I don't know about that, but I appreciate you saying it. Anyway, yeah, no, great to be here. How's beautiful Vermont right now? Vermont is beautiful in summer, I'll tell you. It's a long winter here, and so it, I always think of it, it's probably not dissimilar to what you see up where you are, but like the winter's so long that the, the growing season is so condensed that it's like, it's just so amazing. Like everything is just ripping, you know, everything's yep. green. We've actually had somewhat of a weird summer in that the, um, it was cold. We haven't had a, that real hot sort of shot of weather that we typically get hot, humid, but, uh, somewhat dry now rivers are a little low, but we get rain. I don't know. It's, it's, you know, I think weather generally speaking is, <laughs> is unpredictable yeah. particularly these days, but, um, but it's uh it's a beautiful, 
beautiful time of year here. So I love yeah. being outside in the summer. Yeah, everything luscious and green. How mm. close are you to Burlington? Like two and a half hours or okay. so. So, you know, not super, super close. Um, but uh, but we get up there periodically. I got up there a lot more in college. Um, it was kind of the, the thing to do was to get away from my little little tucked away rural college and go to the big city of Burlington. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, not as much anymore. It's a great city. It's right in Lake Champlain. It's beautiful, beautiful yeah. part of the world. Yeah, that's that's the one place in Vermont I have been to, and my wife went to college there. And coincidentally, that and I've mentioned this before, that place gets compared to Duluth a lot, being yeah. on the lake and kind of yep. like similar weather and stuff. So, yeah. yeah, you know, you don't have to sell it to me. I'm I, I'm a I'm a Vermont fan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's funny in Duluth. I think about you all the time because um, Duluth is a city I've not or town down big town city that I've not been to, but I've really? always been enamored by. Yeah, and it. Uh, I don't know that there's something about the upper Midwest, like sort of Northern Wisconsin, Northern, Northern Minnesota that I just love, not only from a bird hunting perspective, but just from a, it's familiar, but it's a little more wild. There's more, there's more of it, you know, and, um, things like Lake Superior, you know, as a resource, just phenomenal. And, and across the board, I would, I would love to spend more time up there. So one day I'll get up to Duluth and see it all in action. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, definitely would be a worthwhile trip. I'm sure you would enjoy it here it's uh yeah. i love living here and yeah we have got a lot of diversity with the with the great lake and big forest and do awesome. you do a lot of fishing in the summer have you been doing some fishing you know i it's i saw a guy i was at pheasant fest you were not at pheasant fest this spring. not this year no. didn't make it no yeah i saw a guy at pheasant fest who used to live who used to work for orvis and used to live locally and we were talking about local streams that he and i have both fished and he's like oh have you been fishing a lot lately, or I guess this was in the spring. So he was talking about the summer previously. Like, oh, did you fish a lot last summer? And I was like, you know, you know, I, I, I just haven't been fishing that much, and I don't know why. Like, I wanna, I wanna, you know, I wanna be fishing more. I love it. I just don't know what gets in the way. And I, he had some funny quote. He was like, you know, when someone says they're not fishing enough, the only excuse is like they're just not going fishing and like, there's no, there's no, I forget what it is. It was much more clever and sort of eloquent than that. But, but I have fished a bit this summer, not as much as I would have liked to and have no good excuse for that. But, uh, next weekend actually. So we're, we're talking on the eighth today, next weekend. Um, I'll be headed up to Northern Maine for an annual trip. Um, uh, it's this really cool old club where I actually bird hunt too, but it's a, a friend of mine belongs to this club up on the Quebec border that, um, that has this really old school kind of Island camp. Um, and then a bunch of ponds, brook drop ponds, it's all native brookies and just a really cool, really cool area and a really cool way to fish. It's a lot of st- uh, like still water, flat water, brook trout fishing in ponds. So you're, okay. you're casting yep. to spring holes and it's just a really neat deal. So I'm looking forward to that and just get my, get my licks in and hopefully catch a bunch of brookies. Yeah. I maybe have a similar relationship with fishing. I've, I've done a lot of it over the years, but it's definitely something that has, it's just as my hobbies have been whittled away with other responsibilities in life. I, you know, all my focus is kind of on bird hunting. So fishing, takes a back seat and i get a little bit in at the cabin and do some fly casting for bluegills and stuff which is kind of a fun way to get a small dose of fishing in but we have a lot of trout lakes a lot of inland trout lakes in this part of the world that i used to that was one of one of my favorite things to do because a lot of them are there's usually like they're in the middle of the woods it's kind of a lake that 
would maybe not be a, a desirable place to go, so the DNR will sort of kill it off, and then they'll put trout in there, and then it kind of makes it like this little adventure fishing. Right. You can go and fish from shore and that kind of thing. So I definitely uh, love catching brookies in small ponds or lakes like that. Yeah, and that's more like we have some of that in northern Vermont, and that's what a lot of what I did in college. I fished yeah. a lot. I mean, there have been times in my life where I've fished a lot, a lot. And, um, and that was always more kind of the program up there. And it's funny, we just last weekend, um, we were, you and I were talking before we started recording about a mutual friend who was in town. We hiked up to a kind of a mountain lake a couple miles in on the Appalachian Trail. There's a, there's a lake here that's got brook trout in it. Um, mm. And we didn't, we actually didn't fish. We just kind of went swimming and tooled around a little bit. But, uh, but that kind of thing really appeals to me, just getting away from some of the crowds and, and yep. you know, just sort of, those those small still kind of sheltered bodies of water to me is really special and, yep. and i don't i'm not so worried about catching big fish i'd rather catch a lot of fish <laughs> so yeah, like yeah. so like i'm with you on the bluegill thing like when yeah. i when i was growing <laughs> up yeah outside of boston all of the little suburban ponds were just overloaded with bluegills and uh and i could do that for hours just go yeah. catch you know one after the next after the next loved it so yeah that can be very fun it. yeah so I got to ask, how tall is Johnny Carter, really? He's he's deceptively <laughs> he's tall. Don't get me wrong. I think he I think he's six eight or something. But he doesn't come off as I thought he'd be taller. Yeah, <laughs> if that makes sense. So I'm like, trying to get uh, as is there a little Hollywood effect going on here? Sasha trying to make him look big and posing on the camera. <laughs> you know, it's funny. There was a. Did you see that video? That I don't think it's shared. Publicly I haven't yet. yet. No. The, no. Yeah. So they they did this one this video at Orvisan and Nona that came out. It was, I, I was just so those guys are incredible. Just what they can do, kind of on the fly. And Sasha's yeah. a really really good videographer but there's a there's a scene at the beginning where johnny and i are talking and we're like the same height <laughs> and then we're like looking eye to eye and someone in the comments was like what did you dig a hole and like put johnny in the hole what's going on and uh it was fun i think he, we were standing on like i was on the high point on the hill and he was below me or something but uh yeah he's a tall fella and i can see why um i can see why guns i can see why he requires modifications on the guns yeah. that he shoots regularly but it's also impressive to me that he can shoot he's pretty adaptable for right. someone that big to be able yep. to shoot um kind of a standard configuration shotgun pretty pretty well you know he's yep. clearly shot a lot of guns and, and has good just good uh sort of fundamental know-how so yeah, yeah really watch his channel enough he's he kind of he picks up plenty of guns and does just fine with them yeah, yeah yeah and just such a lovely guy and sasha was so awesome and um really felt fortunate to get some time with them that just kind of coincidentally happened to come together but uh but yeah you'll get a kick out of the um the the video when it goes i think it's going public in in a, a week or two they said they just release it to everybody so it's the orvis sandinona um, okay I think I forget what they call it, but, uh, but anyway, it's, they're just hilarious. Like never, a never a dull moment. Good, good chatty British guys with a lot of funny things to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I know when, when, and I'm sure it was the same when you interviewed him on your show, when I interviewed him on here, I knew a bunch of people that I had talked to watched his channel. So I knew that people were aware of him, but I was, I was maybe even beyond that surprised at how many people kind of wrote in were like, Oh, I'm so glad you interviewed Johnny. I watched the channel and, um, definitely has has made a made kind of a splash, and 
um, very unique channel. You know, there just wasn't anything out there quite like it. Yeah, and I think he's done an incredible service to, well, put it this way, I think from my perspective and looking at media kind of across the, the mm. spectrum media for, for wing shooting specifically, all of my focus in terms of what I was digesting or, or, or looking at was, was Instagram really and podcasts. I mean, those were the two yeah. sort of forums formats that, uh, that seemed really available and seemed like people were gravitating towards. And then to see his stuff on YouTube and to see the, the kind of long form stuff he was doing on YouTube and yep. just how incredibly informational it was, it was sort of a revelation to me. It was like, Oh yeah, I forgot about YouTube as a, right. as a resource. And, um, and the the quality of what they're putting out, the the amount, the volume of it, and then the reception. I mean, he's like a he's really, arguably, I don't know that there's anyone in wing shooting, kind of contemporary wing shooting, that's as well or widely known. You figure because he's appealing to people all across the world, mm -hmm. and I think also what he's done to somewhat demystify, but also um, I guess make make sort of that. UK European um, driven shooting culture more approachable and more aspirational and more sort of like oh okay this is someone who does this this is what they're like and I I can relate to this guy I don't know that anyone else has come close to to doing something like that in the way that he's done it so from a standpoint of probably keeping those keeping those traditions and sports alive over there like he's 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 got the world by the tail in a lot of ways. Like he's really, um, really doing great. Yeah, no, definitely a, definitely a really cool look into that, that kind of shooting culture. And then just obviously the deep dive on the guns that selfishly, a lot of us are interested in anyways. It was, it was, yeah, fairly unprecedented. I mean, you could go find books and, and magazines and, and that kind of stuff, like you said, but the, the visuals and some of that stuff just lends itself so well to, a, a video format and being able to look at the guns and break things down and talk through things. It's just, uh, it's really fun to watch. Yeah. And I think you get a sense from him. I've thought a lot about this, you know, that, that, cause you, I mean, you and I both have, have this, you know, have sort of the spoken word conversational, yep. um, thing. And then, you know, the, the other vehicles, whether it's writing or whether it's photography stills, so on and so forth, it's hard to get a sense of the it's hard to get a sense of who the person is, you know, and, mm -hmm. and I think without seeing them in motion, kind of engaged with the experience, engaging with other people, it's really hard to understand kind of who, who they are and, and really develop that. You know, granted, it's it's you're consuming what they're giving you, but it but there is a relationship. I mean, I feel as yep. though like when you watch um when you watch Johnny do his thing, you're like, Oh, I, I know this guy. Like I, I get him. And then you see him in person and it's like, yeah, this is, <laughs> I know yeah. you because I've seen you interact like this before. And so, uh, I don't know. It's something I struggle with on the podcast. It's funny not to get too deep in the weeds, but it's something that I spoke to Johnny about before he was on the podcast with me was I, I had referenced the fact that I went, and did the terrible, stupid thing of like reading your reviews on Apple podcasts or <laughs> iTunes or whatever. And, um, and there was like several, uh, 
several reviews that that basically said, you know, Reed's so enamored with himself. All he does is talk about himself. He thinks he's the best thing ever, which I, I mean, I guess like we should all take constructive criticism, but like, I don't, sure. I don't think of myself, like I'm a pretty like self-conscious, awkward, <laughs> like, like, uh, you know, whatever, <laughs> like yeah. lacking in confidence uh, sort of guy. And so it was very weird for me to hear that perception of myself. Yeah. And, um, and so I said to Johnny, I was like, you know, I just, I, I'm going to really try not to talk too much to sort of let you do the thing. Like I don't, I'll ask you questions, you answer them. And, and he was like, no, don't, don't do that. Like, let's just have a conversation. Like we would have a conversation. Don't yeah. feel like you have to sort of not be you. And, and because in the end, like people want to feel like they're sitting at a table having a conversation with us. So like, that's how I, so anyway, I guess my point being that, uh, when you can only sort of see or hear one side of the individual and not sort of see the full integration of how they're in the space, doing the thing, building the relationship, having the conversation, I think it's easy to, to make assumptions or make judgments that may or may not be totally true. And I'm not saying that like, I don't like clearly if people interpret sort of my work or whoever's work, you know, in a certain way, that's up to them to do. But it was just interesting yeah. to to kind of have that conversation with him. Sorry, that was a little bit off to the side, but no, um, no, that's a, no. I I def I take your point as as far as you know, especially with one form of media, you know, in you. If there's a blank space there, our minds will have a tendency to fill it, right? So, mm-hmm. like, we're going to jump to those conclusions or maybe make assumptions whether we want to or not. And and like you're saying watching Johnny on the channel interact with other people it's more personal and you kind of see him engaging with with others and you get a, a fuller sense of who he is where which I think you know for for this this podcast or your podcast if you listen to a podcast enough you get to know the host in a way that like I would agree with you you know I feel like you know it's a, you and I don't hang out every weekend but I feel like I know you and I've 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 listened to you for hours on the podcast and it's one of the things that I always liked about podcast or anything similar is that because then when I hear you talk about something next week I have all this context and and right. like I know your thoughts and opinions on this other stuff so I kind of know how you arrived at that and I think that's a it's a deeper connection than randomly stumbling across a Reed Bryant article in a magazine right like I right. know you a little bit more so yeah no I, I appreciate you saying that and I do think it's a unique it's a unique platform and frankly like I love I mean, I used to listen to like talk radio, like this is back in, you know, I'm old now, but like back in the era (laughs) of talk radio where it was just sort of like people just talking about whatever, like it Mm -hmm. wasn't, it was sort of general. (laughs) I don't even know, like, you know, and I loved listening to like Prairie Home Companion and all that stuff. And I loved the sort of serialized, I I know these characters, I know these people. And um, that's why I'm so fascinated I should be more of a student, like you're much more of a student of it than I am. But uh, but I just love that there's still an appetite for people listening to people talk about stuff without yeah. without like a definitive time frame or sort of constraints around, okay, these are the rules. You can't say this. You can't say that. Like letting people just go, you know, it's very democratic. And, and I love that. Like I love that people still want to hear that because I feel as though – in the end, as much as we are disconnected on a lot of levels, like hearing people talk to each other, like connects you to that. I don't know. There's something yeah. there. I can't quite articulate it, but it's, yeah. it's special. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, I follow you. And it, I don't know that I've, I haven't spent a ton of time thinking about this recently, but you're, you know, mentioning talk radio and I listen to that and it's not like two people talking on an audio format is anything new, but it's almost like within the last decade or so, you know, the podcast kind of hit reset on that in some weird way. And I don't even know, I don't even know how, but it's like, oh, it's just two people talking, but it's different format than what we were maybe used to listening to on AM or FM radio, even though it's not all that different. But Yeah. Yeah. No. And I think on a lot of levels, I mean, I, I, I don't know that it's fair to say, maybe it's not totally fair to say this, but I, I think like Joe Rogan did a lot to just say like, we don't have to have a, this can go as long as it needs to go yeah. till the conversation yep. is over. We can go wherever we want to go and we may not have a clear, it's, it's funny. Like I go back to my early career was in education and it drove me crazy that when, when studying education, there was a lot of conversation about like the intended outcome. So it's sort of like I'd, I'd meet the kid at point A, but I had a very clear idea in my head of where I wanted them to arrive at point Z or whatever. Mm-hmm. And when I wandered into more non-traditional education, the goal became like, to give, there is no destiny. Like, you go wherever you go. They may wind up yeah. <laughs> not even in the alphabet anymore. And it's cool. Like, that's where they took it. And and I think it's hard. I think, I think that that's some of what we're seeing with podcasts is that there, it doesn't have to be formulaic. And some of them are. You know, some of them follow right. a routine. Right. But similar to like, I mean, shoot, being a little kid and listening to Larry Glick on whatever the he was like the guy on the talk radio I listened to when I went to bed at night, and and it was <laughs> and he he wandered all over the place, but it was like clearly to find time. You know, there's a commercial every X, no, you know, every so long, and uh, so it did have a little more structure than I think the podcast format does now, and and uh, and yeah, I, I think people just like. I think they like that that freedom, that ability to kind of hear it evolve and go and whatever. It doesn't have to be so structured. But, you know, I could be wrong. I, that's just for me, that's really appealing. Yeah, I would agree. And certainly listening to the Joe Rogan podcast throughout the past however many years has definitely influenced the way I've tried to do things. And um, it, would, it just interested me. And I, I like that. And the diversity of topics too. Well, well, you know, I, I stay pretty focused on this show. One thing I really appreciate about his show and listening when I'm reading or listening to other stuff is just the complete diversity. You know, it's one week it's aliens and UFOs and the next weekend it's physical human performance and that kind of thing. Did you ever listen to, uh, we'll keep the random going. Did you ever listen to like Art Bell or George Norrie, the coast to coast AM? No. Oh, okay, that's a that's a late night. Like it, it, in college, I would listen to that. It's late night and like very much so. Bigfoot, UFOs, ghosts, all kinds oh, of crazy stuff. I have heard that. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. I know what you're talking about. Um, yes, I like vaguely, and I can't think of where I would have listened to that. But, uh, but anyway, <laughs> maybe yeah, just late funny. night, late night driving or something. Probably. You would have heard it. But yeah, yeah I, I've always just been kind of into that stuff, and I. I don't think I'm going to find Bigfoot in my next grouse cover. In fact, I, I often argue with, with folks that it's very unlikely that you will f- discover Bigfoot. If, if we discovered dinosaurs on this planet, I think we could find Bigfoot. That's always my argument. But I don't like know what no, re- no remains, no, yes. no yeah. sa- uh, clear sight. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a guy, a farmer near us, 
Ryan Yoder, if he's listening, which he won't be, <laughs> but nonetheless, <laughs> the total classic. Um, just really, really interesting cat, really non-typical thinker. But he's he's a he's a far out thinker and sort of fringe in a lot of his ways of going about thinking about things. But like not not ira- Well, I guess you can say somewhat irrational. But but anyway, he. Um, Organic farmer grows diversified organic veggies, makes does a lot with apples and releasing trees and cider. But he's very genuinely a believer and very genuinely like I wouldn't say expects to, but is fairly confident that he will see like a Bigfoot, a Sasquatch at some point. Like <laughs> it's like it's kind of just not not if, but when <laughs> he yeah. stumbled, you know. And uh, oh, it's hilarious! I love it. Like I love yeah. his conviction, and maybe that's yeah. what it takes, right? Yeah, right, right. No, maybe I should get a Bigfoot expert on here at some point. Well, did you ever see? It's funny. And now we're really going deep, but I'll, I'll d- reel me back in if you need Indulge to. Indulge me. <laughs> there was a, um, I forget what the point was that was being made, but it was in one of my classes in grad school for education. We were talking about, I guess we, I don't know what it would have related to, but the the case study was this movie. And it's like this exercise. And if you've seen it, you know the you know the answer. And I don't want to like give it away. Well, I guess I have to give it away to explain it. But in <laughs> essence, it's an old film, and the the instructions are okay. Watch how many times the the people like the people in this little film video pass the basketball, and it's like six people in like basketball uniforms yeah. standing in a circle, and they're like passing the basketball across the circle, like boom, 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 boom. And so you watch it and you're counting and whatever you get to the, uh, you get to the end and I forget how the, the teacher posed it, but it's like, okay, watch, watch this vid, the same video. I'm going to rewind it and you're going to watch yeah. it again, but like watch the gorilla and you're like, what? Like, what are you uh, talking about? You never saw And then the there's, there's like a guy in a gorilla <laughs> suit, like walking around <laughs> in the middle of the circle and you're, you're like, how did I not? How did I not see that? But it's one of these things where your mind becomes fixated on this task at hand. The basketball. The basketball. And you yeah. just don't even see the rest of what's going on. And it's – I remember being really like blown away by that experience because it happened to me. You know, like I didn't see the yeah. gorilla. Yeah. And then uh, and then just being like, man, what else am I missing? Like th- there's got to be stuff constantly that I'm not seeing or not paying yeah. attention to. And uh kind of freaks you out when you start to think along those lines yeah no that's that's akin to the to the you know the new car thing you get a you get a toyota tundra and you see them all over the road you're, you're seeing what what's what you're focused on right um yeah no that i i don't when you said gorilla it kind of sounded vaguely familiar i don't know i don't recall ever look seeing i bet if you go on youtube and say like basketball pass gorilla or something yeah it'll it'll be i wish we had a young jamie that could google that i know seriously need, why, why haven't you hired a young jamie yet come on What's wrong with i i actually i wrote a paper on this is funny i remember this because i wrote a paper on bigfoot in high school in an yeah. english class and it was i think i was i was arguing for its existence and the teacher kind of like we had a good good relationship actually her husband is a i know him now he's a he's a bird hunter around here and he uh the teacher kind of called me out in front of the class and we were joking back and forth and she's like it came to a head where she's like wait a minute nick you you don't actually believe in bigfoot and i was like no i don't i just i wanted to write that paper she's like okay and i remember i got an a on the paper so right right it was uh just a funny memory from high school oh that's awesome yeah, I love were, it. were you an English teacher? 
I, I think we talked no, about this last time. I was I was a uh, I was somewhat like non-denominational. I actually taught little kids about agriculture. Like we, I worked on a farm and we taught kids about farming, but it was it was very non-academic. So like they just came and did the work of the farm. It was a, like a it was basically a commune. Like we lived on a commune <laughs> and taught little kids about farming. Yeah, so. Um, very, I never was, a, I did some substitute teaching, but I was never a classroom teacher and I okay. never sort of did, um, I, I was never, well, I shouldn't say that. I, a student taught a little bit, but I, I was never really formally in a classroom. Wasn't, yeah. Wasn't my thing. I feel like a lot, a lot of, uh, like English teachers are, are bird hunters. Yeah. I think there's something about that. Like, I think that a lot of, um, you know, it's kind of a poetic thing and it's, it's not, um, it's funny, like, this is probably way too big a generalization, but have you ever shot skeet? Like, have you ever, like, shot yes, a skeet? Yes, but very, very few times. Um, yeah. I have, though, yeah. Yeah, and I'm not, I've, same with me, like, I don't shoot yeah. skeet a lot. But, like, the people that shoot skeet, because the, the, everything's always the same, you know, yep. it's like the presentation. And so that, like, pre, that, like, you know, sort of, regimen they got for they're calculating yeah yeah it's so like so you can see how that almost like engineer's mind would would gravitate towards something like that but i feel as though with bird hunting it's so fluid and like the potential for no success is so profound (laughs) that like you have to be willing to like find something else in there so yeah i think that's i think it's a a good observation and it, it does feel like one of those kind of poetic fly fishing too and in, in yes yep. you know it's sort of non-technical it's it's somewhat um i don't know like it doesn't it it, it it doesn't really equate to it's almost like whimsical i guess is the best yeah. way to put it like it's yep. it's all just sort of silly that we take it as seriously as we do and right, yet it is right. it is something we take seriously i don't know the so i think there's some some the, like the outfits yeah for real yeah <laughs> I, I, I do remember one of my English teachers, Mr. Taplin. I think I had him for a year. He was a bird hunter. And my buddy and I always joke, my buddy Brian, I've known him since kindergarten. And he's probably, he's like one of my oldest grouse hunting friends. And he still lives around here too. But we joke sometimes because there was at one point in, in class, Mr. Taplin was like what called out my buddy Brian in class. And he was like, you're your grade report looks like a shotgun pattern because it had so, so many zeros on it. Oh, really? Nice. <laughs> yeah. So we, we chuckle about Mr. Taplin from time to time. Yeah. That's awesome. I wonder awesome. if he's still out there bird hunting. Hopefully. Somewhere. <laughs> somewhere out there. Well, that was a whimsical start to the podcast, Reed, but okay. here we are. <laughs> yeah, here we are. There how, we uh, how was your hunting season last fall? Any uh, any memorable moments or, or highlights for you? Yeah, a little bit. Um, I would say that it was, uh, you know, it's funny, and I don't I don't know what to attribute this to, whether it's just the, the change in everything that has occurred since the pandemic, but my memory, like my my memory, sort of the acuity of my memory is really, really bad. So I kind of have a flavor of what I did last year, but I, I don't know that it's wholly kind of accurate. So the standout bits and pieces from last year were um, going up to Maine, to northern Maine, and hunting mm-hmm. up there with my young dog, who was really her first season. She's She needs a lot of work, but it was just getting her excited and getting her out. Um, little Springer and and I had a day oh, with yes. a buddy, um, this guy Abel Labelle, that was actually on the pod, on my podcast. Uh, 
where he and I went out and shot some woodcock and it was just awesome. Like she, the, the metal dog did pretty well. I shouldn't say that she did pretty badly, but she was into <laughs> it, you know, and, and I was killing birds over. So that was Is good. she your first springer? No second, but our okay. first one has had just a, like a ridiculous number of health issues. So he really doesn't hunt. Um, he has hunted and I did hunt him early in his life, but it's been too long. So yeah, no, she's, and she's, um, she did great. So that was, that was really nice. Um, just to have that experience. And then I had a lot of sort of stutter start, like I was going to go to here, there or wherever it just didn't happen. So, you know, shot some, shot some birds, sort of pen raised birds here and there. Um, did some duck hunting. That was great. Uh, really fortunate to do that. And, um, really what, what stood out to me last year, I think was that, um, this will sound, this will sound weird actually, and maybe not what you were expecting to hear, but, um, (laughs) the, the pandemic and a lot of the stuff that was going on or has been going on sort of in the world, I guess, if you will, just like the sort of cultural and political and whatever else stuff really, really bummed me out. Like I just sort of gotten like a, a pretty not excited, not enthusiastic mindset and still struggle with that somewhat. Um, and it, it took away a degree of the, the like sparkle and the joy from the things that I love to do. And I don't know if, and not to get, I don't, I don't want to get overly personal, but I mean, as someone who's, who's, I think, um, struggled, scrap this if you want, <laughs> you go to the editing no, process, man. Go, but like, go for yeah, it. yeah, I mean like I've, I've definitely like struggled, struggled throughout my life with like depression stuff and, and, uh, and it just kind of weighed heavy on me. And, and when, what scares me about being in those kind of low points is that when the things that you rely on to bring you joy, like kind of start to not do it it's like a really scary place because you're sort of like, wait, I, I thought I had this this thing that I could turn to yeah. that was going to like kind of pull me out of the dark moments. But when it becomes like a chore or it has this sort of feeling of weight to it and you're like, oh, I got to, you know, I want to do this thing. I know intellectually I want to do this thing, but it just feels like not as fun as it used to feel. It's like yeah. a really weird feeling. And I, I talked to several people kind of, industry i guess you would say folks uh or people that i know through the hunting space about that and and um and they it was interesting to me how many people said something similar just Mm -hmm. that it was like it just doesn't it's like we're looking around at all this stuff that's going on and how heavy a lot of it feels and all the unknowns and all the fear and anxiety and whatever and and to do these things that used to just be like really lighthearted. It's just not as, it just doesn't feel quite the same. And, uh, and it was interesting for me to hear people say that in, in a way to feel like I wasn't alone in it, but also to feel like, um, kind of like, wow, so where, where are we? (laughs) Like what, what's the pathway out, you know? And, uh, and I think that, uh, yeah, I don't know. So, so it's, it's, it's been an interesting year. So I guess to, to answer your question, maybe more, more directly, you know, the things that were, were hard for me were like being away from my family, you know, traveling to hunt and traveling for work and and being away from my family and sort of thinking like, I don't know, it just feels like 
weird to be gone, weird to not be around them, weird to not be at home. Things like travel itself, logistics were just brutal. You know, I don't know if you flew at all during the pandemic, but even now. I have not, and I kind of am dreading it. (laughs) Oh, it's the worst. I mean, just like stuff gets canceled constantly and people are angry and people are frustrated, particularly when the mask mandate was still on. And so it just, everything just felt kind of like more of a grind than, than an, than an adventure. And, uh, so I really liked, um, I really liked, you know, hunting around home a little bit or kind of just being, yeah, just being close to home felt good. I did have some good days up in Northern Vermont with some coworkers and friends and, um, yeah, I don't know. It's sort of the, 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 the comforts of, of home felt important to me last year more than they have in a long time. Yeah. I appreciate that. I, I kind of, I guess I've always kind of prided myself in sort of being ever the optimist and, and upbeat and positive, but I mean, I've, I've had my moments over the last 24 months. It's, it's strange. I really do think it's strange. I don't think, I don't think you're alone in those feelings and I've heard other people talk about it and the way communication tends to happen nowadays and how that is affected and, and the differences in that kind of communication versus what you might have talking to somebody face to face in person, yeah. which we yeah. all did a whole lot less of yeah. and how those two things are kind of mixing and changing people's behaviors and stuff. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's strange. And I, I have spent a lot of time at home in and around home the last two years and I've enjoyed that. And I, I I've got two little kids and both my wife and I work from home and you know, we just kind of have our little routine and we've really sort of like stuck stuck close together and not done a whole lot outside of that yeah yeah no and i i've sort of done the same and now you know i think looking at my kids are older in fact my younger daughter's turned 16 she's going to college right or my older one's going to be a senior okay so she's 17 she'll be 18 in the fall they're both kind of on the old end of things and my younger one turned 16 today and she's uh going to be a sophomore so she's she's kind of a third grade but uh um you know, they're getting closer to going off out into the world yeah. and, and sort of having having them not be at home after having them having us all be at home. Right. You know, it sort of feels like I'm just not quite ready. I mean, I am, I guess. But it's like the, the, <laughs> the wrapping my head around being ready to just be us all scattered all over here, there, and everywhere. And then yep. it just feels as though, you know what, and again, I don't want to like get overly gloomy or whatever but it just feels like so many things happened over the last few years that i never would have thought could happen that when i'm not around those those sort of comfortable places or familiar places familiar people or people i can trust like i just feel as though anything anything could happen like anything could go sideways anything could get weird anything could and i just I don't know. It's a, it's a funny feeling. So like, again, the idea, it's funny. I was talking to a buddy, um, this guy, Adam Foss, who some of the listeners may know, who's a very accomplished bow hunter, um, very accomplished, uh, sheep hunter. Very, he does a lot with, um, Sitka and with, uh, mystery ranch packs and a bunch of different brands. Just really, really super talented guy. And he's like, he's Canadian. So he's got that going for him, which is good. Um, but he's like super optimistic and just like one of those guys, like really fit, really yeah. tons of energy. Sure. Really of himself. Just, yeah. Just yeah. awesome. Awesome guy. And, uh, and it was funny like talking to him and sort of mentioning that sort of gloominess feeling that I was carrying around. And he's like, no, 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 this is, 
get out there and do it. Like go bigger than you've ever gone. Like go mm-hmm. do, go further, go harder, do more, blah, 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 you know, and, and just like his, his ability to just like sort of in the, in the tough times, really just to find the, find the energy, find the joy, kind of keep grinding and, and, and not have it be a grind, but like have it be joyful. It just really made me think like I need to, sometimes also get over myself and just cultivate more of that. So anyway, David Goggins, stay hard. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I was thinking about him last night. I don't know why I was thinking about him. I was driving home and uh, thinking about the, he'll get in your head. Oh God. And the time that he did the, um, he went to the track to run the like hundred miles or whatever. Do you ever, do you remember that story? He was on Joe Rogan. He told it. Well, yeah, yes, I have. And he like got in the bathtub and he like, Oh, he was like, oh, God, like he ate Ritz crackers and drank something was like, oh, just his body must have been the torture that he's put himself through. Oh, golly. He's amazing, though. Indeed. Indeed, he is. Um, I was going to I was going to say something. Oh, so you as as somebody that has a little bit older kids, my wife and I, we have four and Jack will be one in August. Yeah. yeah. Um, Sometimes I'm just, I'm caught in this, like, I'll just like be going through, going about my business. And then I'm just like, it's this worrying thing. I'm just like trapped in this worrying. Like I think about all of the stuff that I did and like, and I was not a, like a wild child, you know, like I was, I was pretty well behaved and whatever, but you know, we get into stuff. Right. And I think about the close calls I had, the brushes with danger and all that stuff. And I just. I just, I'm like panicked about my kids and like, you've obviously been through more life. So like all you can do is just take, take it day by day. But I mean, man, how do you, it, does it get any better? Or are you just always worried about them? Like yeah, that? no, it's a good question. Um, we had kids really young. Like I just turned 46. We had Willa who's, you know, so I was, I was 28 Yeah, and my wife was 24. 24 25 when when we had our our first so we were you know relatively speaking we were really young and i think sure. in some ways we didn't know what we didn't know like ignorance is bliss in a lot of ways you know right. so like yeah so we kind of knew what we had done and what it, little brushes but we're both pretty i don't know boring people i guess you would say like <laughs> there hadn't been i think more the things that were hard for me it's funny like going back to that idea of um of of sort of like and again, I, I apologize. I wasn't expecting to like go into this on this conversation. But like the 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 thing that was hard for me was knowing, sort of knowing what what it felt like to have periods of like real sadness and like mm. thinking that my kids might have to go through that. Like that for me was really hard. That was like yeah. the same, probably similar to what you're feeling of like how do you? I can't control this. Like it's yeah things are going to happen to them and, and I don't, I can't make it okay. Like it's just sort of something that has to, maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't, maybe it'll be bad. Maybe it won't. Like you just don't know. And you kind of just have to relinquish that. My, my wife always used to say having kids was like taking your heart out of your chest and like letting it like run around out there in the world, like getting, you know, yeah, dirty yeah. and rained on and crashing into things and whatever else. And, and it's really true. I think the other piece for us though, that was valuable and this is kind of twofold um one when my kids were little we as i was saying about the school like we were kind of in a community so it was Mm. there was a lot of influences so we 
really, you know, that whole old adage about like it takes a village. Like we really were very fortunate that there was a village raising our kids. So you kind of you kind of knew that there was like a lot of eyes looking out for them and, and a lot of people that they could trust and turn to that would help them. So I think that's important. And that's been hard, you know, because of the pandemic, like right. having that community has been really challenging and building that community and also having little kids as yours are kind of developing their sense of the world, you know, when they didn't have access to, they couldn't have access to a big broad range of people yep. like that. That's gotta be hard, you know, for, for them developmentally. But I guess the other thing I was going to say was I grew up in a house with, like my mom was like the classic, like cautionary tale mother. So like she had seen, you know, according to her, and I don't doubt that many of these were <laughs> sort of fables, but you know, anything you wanted to do, like, Oh, I'm going to go skating. She'd be like, well, I knew two kids that like fell through the ice and drowned on that pond when I was little. And like, Oh, I'm going to go sledding. Oh, I knew a kid that went sledding on the road and slid under a car and his chin got stuck on the bumper and he broke his neck and died. You know, it's like, she would tell me this. I, she caught me once like trying to pop a zit in the mirror when I was like 13. She's like, Oh, I knew a guy who did that. Popped his head off. He knows she said that he like, it like went in and like gave him blood poisoning and he died. And I was like, geez, like, I can't do anything. You know? That is and, uh, extreme. It was a lot. And so I kind of grew up with this like fear of everything. And I yeah. think it was very important for us also to communicate to our kids. And, you know, everyone's got their own take on this. But yeah. sort of to say like generally speaking, the world – and this is where it's I think kind of been hard for me over the last few years. Like Generally speaking, the world is a place – that is like beautiful and kind and forgiving and people look out for people. And, you know, I think, I think it's kind of like the gorilla and the basketball, you sort of manifest your own yeah. reality. And that's not to say that, that bad things don't happen to good people and vice versa, but like, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard being a parent. It's a lot. It's, yeah. it's hard to know. It's hard to know what's right. It, every kid needs something a little different. And, you know, we were lucky. And I think you and your your wife, like, I, I guess the one thing I would also say, though, is that if you're just looking at you and how you conduct yourself just in the ways that I know you, you know, you're a kind person, you're an honest person, you're interested in what you're interested in and you're not sort of going through the motions of doing what you have to do just because it's sort of what's expected of you. And I think right. those like really subtle lessons for a kid, like let them be confident in making their own choices. And so, yeah, I mean, are they going to break their legs and, you know, bloody their noses and skin their knees? Like probably to some yeah. extent, but, but the more fundamental stuff, I think, I think that modeling is really valuable. You know, it's just like surrounding them with people that you have confidence in, that you care about, that you respect, you know, that goes a long way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you're too kind, buddy, but <laughs> no, no, it's true. It's true. <laughs> uh, I, I will say too, though, I am kind of a, I tend to be a pretty cautious person. Like I'm a mm -hmm. cautious kind of rule follower. And I, that was instilled in me a little bit, I think by my mom. So I, that's something I've thought about with my kids. Like, trying to back off a little bit. Cause I'm like, you know, I'll have a tendency to, to be maybe a little overprotective and just like something really silly, you know? So I've, I've been mindful of that and, 
you know, like you said, you you do what you do. You got to gotta follow your gut a lot. And go with your sure. instinct, I think. And yeah, it it is what it is, day by day. Yeah, no, indeed, it's really true. What about you? Have you um have you introduced them? And they're little, but like, what's their yeah. relationship to to the hunting side of things, or like how how do you how do you share that? How do you communicate it to them? Yeah. So I, I just, I just was talking to this on an episode that went up today actually. And, um, I was interviewing Will Larson and he's got, he's going to have six kids this fall. So yeah. he's, he's got a, he's got a handful. We were talking about sort of introducing them very briefly, but like with my oldest one, he's four, he's had a lot of exposure now just based on the things that I'm doing and, and staying busy with, you know, and he sees the hunting stuff around and the dogs and, you know, he's been through a few hunting seasons of me coming home. Like, that's one thing I, I do a lot of day hunts. So I, I get dressed up and, you know, that kind of stuff for a kid. He sees me put the hunting clothes on and I leave and I come home with birds and he's, of course, interested. And he seems to be really, really taking to it without me doing a whole lot outside of just kind of going about my business. And he's emulating me and he's got, I bought him, I did buy him a, like a hunting vest. You know, we were... We, we kept going up to the store and we'd look at this little tiny hunting vest after the season last year. And I was like, well, he really wanted it. I'm like, we got to wait till it goes on sale. Right. And eventually it went on sale. It was like 50% off. I'm like, well, we have to buy it. And he, right. he just fell in love with like, it. He put it on the first night and fell asleep in it. I mean, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, just, just stuff like that is just, I don't know. It's fun to see. And he, I did take him last year. I think twice I took him out grouse hunting. One was the first grouse hunt I went on like, early september oh beautiful. i remember it yeah i think yeah, I, I put a picture of it yeah yeah, yeah. It, and like i just was gonna go grouse hunting that day and he was supposed to be taking a nap but did not take a nap that afternoon and my wife yeah. has to work uh so i was like well i guess i'll try to take him with and so i he he came with and we sort of I had an idea in mind of going to once he was coming i was like all right we're gonna go here it's a gated forest road easy walking we can park here. If no one's there, we can park there. We can just walk down this road. And, you know, that time of year, it's like, you know, maybe we'll find something. Maybe not. The woods are thick. And I I brought Hartley a little bit. He's a little closer working than yeah. Rose and yeah. all that kind of stuff. And, I mean, it honestly, we walked a good ways, but he was having fun. He was just kind of, he was going along. And you could not have scripted. Like Hartley went on point. He was like 80 yards away. So for me to get 80 yards with the three and a half year old at right. that time like but we just took our time and just kind of kept going i'm like okay hartley's up here and i walked in and i saw this grouse on the ground and i mean everything just everything the, the bird cooperated the dog cooperated and i somehow hit the bird and so he got to see all that and it was nice. it was pretty neat but yeah can't make That's that up so he'll he's pretty into it we'll see how much he wants to go walking along this year but yeah that's cool though that's yeah. great He's not he's not old enough to read Orvis Guide to Upland Hunting yet though, Reed. Uh, I got a well, copy ready for him. <laughs> he can read some bedtime reading, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well there's lots of pictures in there that he likes. There are a lot of pictures, yeah. I had it open this morning. I was taking notes and writing stuff down and he was he was looking at the pictures in it. So your oh, buddy Brian good. does a good job. He is good. He's very talented, that's for sure. And uh and it was a fun it was a fun project. I, it's funny to bring it up and maybe this is like a shameless plug here, but, uh, the publisher Rizzoli is, is trying to get another printing of it. Cause it's kind of, I don't know if it 
I guess it just did one printing. I don't know. I so long and the short of it is, um, hopefully people go try to buy it and there's demand for it. Yeah. Uh, because it's you know it was a real passion project and it was one of those things that I'd always thought about writing a book, but I'd always been super intimidated by the idea of writing a book. And when I first started Orvis, had a little bit of how would I say it? There was a, there's a culture here. Tom Rosenbauer, who's our resident fishing expert, yep. who's written a zillion books, um, you know, really w- was a person that I always looked up to. And, and I felt like he had a unique voice in that he delivered a lot of great information that was sort of based on personal experience, but he did it in association with or, or as a as a vehicle for Orvis to kind of help Orvis customers develop a relationship with the brand. And I, I really liked that that was how he'd gone about that. So when I did that book, um, that was kind of what I was after was to, to be able to give, give someone a very, like a comprehensive primer on, okay, if you want to do this thing that feels really foreign to you, these are the ways, these are the considerations that you should, you should have. These are the basic bits and pieces of information that'll make you feel as though, you know, when you're trying to pick out a gun, you have some semblance of understanding of what the different options are and why you would want one over another one, what, you know, where you find them, how you figure out mentorship, how you know where to go hunting, what the different birds are, where they live, how you choose what dog, you know, all those things that I just, it was hard for me to figure out, you know, when I was, when I was learning. Um, and, and I didn't have that person early on in my life that was just giving it to me. Um, the country uncle. The country uncle was I didn't have one. <laughs> so, you know, so to uh, to be able to be that for, for to a degree for other people felt really valuable. And uh, I'm really proud of that book. You know, I, I, I look back at it periodically and just read little snippets and, um, and I think about going home at the end of the day and sitting, we were renting a little house and like sitting beside the wood stove and like just kind of grinding out my thoughts on paper. And, uh, it's, it, it, it occupy, I'm proud of it. I guess put it that way. It's, it, you know, it's not, it's not gonna win a Pulitzer, but it's, it, it's a piece of work that I'm proud of for sure. Well, you should be, you should be proud of it. I've, I really enjoyed reading it. And the one thing I, I'm glad you kind of kicked off that cause that was ultimately the the main reason I brought you on today is I wanted to talk about the book and, and share a little bit more about it with, with listeners. But it is a book that I, I like reading this, this kind of a book, even though I've been upland hunting for a long time, I love sort of going back to basics and like, like where are the gaps, you know, cause we all learn things in this sort of wandering meandering path and then sort of come back to a book like this, that is trying to do the very hard thing of sort of distill you know, down the concepts and topics and stick to fundamentals and sort of lay a foundation for somebody. It's fun to go back and and read that kind of stuff and just sort of see like, and you know, the other things too, like you'll learn something and then you go and get a bunch of years of real world experience. And then you come back and you, you hear the same fundamental and it may, it means something different to you. Like you understand Mm -hmm. it better. So I like, I love always constantly learning in that way. And, you know, I think anybody familiar with your your writing would be pleased in that this book is a very it's informational and it's a how-to guidebook but you definitely you still let your personality and and your writing which i think is very unique show through 
throughout the book. So yeah, thank you for saying that. I, I really appreciate that because I wanted I wanted it to be somewhat philosophical, like straight straight how to straight like informational how to. To me, is just I wouldn't imagine that's something that you would write. I don't, I don't, I can't, I'm not good at it. Like I don't, I'm, I've tried and it's just not something I'm terribly good at. And I don't really like reading it either. So that's probably why, you know, yeah. sort of those go hand in hand. Um, <laughs> I learn pretty well by, by sort of storytelling. And that's, that's what I was hoping to, to get a little bit in there. But I also felt strongly that there are certain lessons that were lessons for me in my education as a hunter and as an outdoors person that that though they aren't kind of strictly academic they're a little more philosophical they were nonetheless like very important and so you know that's where i was able to use my platform or sort of my soapbox a little bit i guess you could say uh to to talk about some of that stuff so things like um i remember as a young aspiring hunter like being very confused about because i had never done it okay if you if you shoot something and it's not dead how do you kill it like i don't know i don't i i didn't have any frame of reference for understanding how to do that and it caused me a lot of anxiety like i i didn't i didn't want to be in that situation and not know what to do and um and so things like that and sort of things like when you, when you take a life, you know, the, just acknowledging that, that that's, that's a lot, like that's a, that's a, that's real, you know? And yep. I think to, I think to gloss over that in, in strictly academic language and just sort of say like, okay, you know, you killed this thing. It's no longer alive. You take it home and eat it is true. And I think there's a point at which it's all well and good to not like be overly, um, focused on, on sort of the philosophical bits and pieces of the, the things that we do. But at the same time, I think it's really important that someone gives you permission to also explore that side of things, particularly with something like, like hunting. You know, another, I don't know that I talk about it in the book, but I think about it all the time when, I, when I'm working with people that are new to shooting, like that have never shot a shotgun before. And you know, they like, you've seen this, uh, any number of listeners have seen this, that like you put a shotgun in someone's hands and they lean back because they're like bracing for impact and they spread yeah. their legs super far apart and they're kind of just like very rigid and just sort of seem super tense. And what occurred to me at some point was, okay, you're putting a deadly weapon in the hands of someone that hasn't handled a deadly weapon before. It's something that that's built to kill things and it's going to create like a violent explosion right in front of their face. And it's like, well, obviously that's scary. Like yeah. to, to assume that someone would just be like very casual and comfortable with that. You probably don't want them to be, you probably want them to be pretty grip. So yeah. it's things like that, just sort of giving permission to go through the learning process and to make those mistakes and yet to make them in a controlled environment where um, no one's going to get hurt and, you know, nothing's going to be sort of irretrievable. But, but I think, I think that was a big motivation for me was sort of to, to, to just make it okay to not know. And then also to make it okay to sort of spend some time thinking about, 
the lessons that you're learning as you go through the process, if that makes some sense. It does. It does. And I, I think that is one of the areas that the book goes beyond again just like here's the basics abc talking about some of those some of those thought ideas and how 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 the relationship works between the birds the habitat killing a bird and to your point using a using a firearm using a gun i would be as guilty as anyone of just sort of glossing over like the weight or the significance of that just because i i grew up with it you know i grew up around shotguns and so it just it doesn't feel like a big deal to me but i hear from so many people that listen to the show that are just getting into bird hunting and they they're not going to have you know a couple decades worth of experience around shotguns and that and that is something that is not to be taken lightly i mean right. that's, and and i i commend you you hammered home in the book a lot about you know the things that can and do happen um that are very unfortunate with guns and you know that's a big that's a huge component of all this and i some of that for me is also like, I mean, I think invariably writing is always somewhat selfishly motivated. Like, like you may be trying to figure something out for yourself or parse out something for yourself or sort of record, yeah. you know, record your experiences or so, you know, in the end it is self-serving on a level. And I think for me, what, what was interesting and has increasingly stuck with me or has stuck with me, I guess, since I, since I did finish writing that was I was writing it at a point where like something that had been fairly not inaccessible, but something that, that wasn't incredibly accessible to me was becoming very accessible. So, you know, just the people, the travel, the, the opportunity to shoot a lot, to be around a bunch of different dogs, all that stuff was, was becoming very much, um, available to me. So I had all these resources, but it was, increasingly apparent to me too and this is something i struggle with a lot that um i don't for example i don't have the same emotional reaction to like killing a bird that i did when i started like i just don't you know and it's because i've shot a lot of birds and i'm not necessarily proud of that and i and i think that that potentially is worth whether there's a lesson in there or not, I don't know, but, but it's worth paying attention to. And similarly, you know, the, as I probably said it in there somewhere, I can't recall, but routinely I hear people like guides say like the most dangerous person to be within the field is the person that's hunted for 50 years and is super casual and is like, Oh, I, you know, I've done this. I'm very experienced. I can walk with my, you know, with my, gun unbroken sort of at my side swinging along stumbling over stuff like those are the people that that have accidents and so for me to remind myself about those really important Mm. pieces that was part of the motivation too and you know it's it's something that i it's something that i just find important or feel is important to to reference with folks is like is like mistakes do happen and I've made them, you know, and that's like the thing, like there have been times just saying, and like I said, now I, I'm not proud of the fact that like you, you where, where if on the rare occasion that, you know, I shoot a bird and can't find it or something like that, that used to just like tear me up and it doesn't in the same way it used to. And that's not necessarily a good thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, there have been moments where I've taken shots that in hindsight, like I'm really not 
proud of taking. And like, that's not a good thing. But, but I think to be honest about that versus to sort of not address it, it it just, I I don't know. For me, it's just like, again, giving that permission to say like, this is all part of the part of the puzzle. And if we can all kind of just talk about the stuff that's, that's not as easy to talk about, like we're all going to do better in the long run. I hope. Do you, do you feel like you've gone through that? This is a common story arc that that is written about and talked about that as you get older and have hunted for longer i think you have the attachment for the bird grows and you feel more remorse and more regret have you have you felt that at all in yeah in killing? It, it's funny i i have a i'm working on a piece um reflective of that somewhat it was a it, it came to light for me because i was talking to ben williams ben o williams um, yeah and he said something along those lines of of uh I can't remember exactly how he said it. It was really beautiful the way he said it, but essentially that, that he, you know, he, he still is so driven to go hunting, but he like almost never brings even a gun anymore. But he's like the, the motivation to go is just as strong as it was. It's different. And sort of the, the vehicle or the angle is different, but, but the motivation is still there. And I just remember thinking about that and thinking about along those same lines of, as I was alluding to earlier in the conversation, when those things that give you joy start to not give you the same joy, like it can be really scary, um, particularly when your identity is wrapped up. And so like for a guy like that to be able to maintain that joy for that, you know, 80, well, it's called 70 years, however hunting, long, yeah. whatever, you know, however yeah. long, um, really is captivating. So to answer your question, you know that I remember, like in hunter safety, like how they're like the evolution of a hunter. You're in the what the blah 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 right. phase, the conservation right. stage, the limiting out stage, <laughs> the, the limiting stage, out you know? stage. Yeah. yeah, and uh, and I I am not proud to say that I still there's elements of of the like the success part that are still drivers for me. I like mm-hmm. to be successful, and I think I think that that's. Um, I don't know that I love that. I talk a lot about the, I talk a lot about sort of the, the hunter that I wish I was and know that I'm not necessarily. And, and, um, you know, it's the, it's the slowing down. It's the, it's the really noticing all of the bits and pieces again, back to the gorilla. Like I still get fixated on the, the destination, not the journey. I, I, I move, through things too quickly i don't take the long tailgate you know lunch or sitting under the apple tree and just sort of soaking it all in and i think some of that is um some of that is just the i also do a lot of different kinds of hunting and i relate to the different kinds of hunting in different ways so for example like with turkey hunting i don't i don't need to kill like if if i can call on a turkey for my wife like that's awesome love yeah um if i can be around someone that's having success like that to me is really gratifying in a lot of ways. But there's times when I, I definitely want to be the one that does the thing, you know, and like in a pretty juvenile way. And I'm not, again, I'm not really proud of that. I think the relationship with dogs is interesting. Like our, when I, before I had kids and before life got kind of crazy, my dedication to my dogs and the, the time spent training and, and working and just like doing whatever I had to do to get birds around for my dogs to, to have access to like 
that was a huge motivation and it's that's tapered off and I'm not proud of that. And I like, I'm not proud of sort of the sloppiness that I, that I sometimes show with my, my training and handling just treatment of, of the dogs. Like they, you know, it's just kind of lame, but it's, I sort of justified by saying like, Oh, I have kids, you know, I have family. I got right. Not everyone's as fixated on, on, you know, whatever, like a retrieve to hand as I am like that. So I got to kind of let something go, but it's something I think about a lot. I'm not really answering your question well, but I, it's something I think about a lot (laughs) and I don't know that I'm always proud of where I'm at in the journey. And a lot of that is simply because the journey seems to be happening fast, you know, like it's like to me, life just feels like it goes by really fast. And I, I don't necessarily, so much of my life revolves around this, this thing we're talking about, hunting dogs, you know, all the stuff that it's all kind of happening all the time, really, really fast. And so I don't have those moments where I find myself like being good at just saying like, okay, stop, like stop, take a step back, like think about this more, just in a more concerted way. I don't, I don't know how to describe it other than that. It's just like, it happens fast. I follow you. I mean, I, we are, we're success oriented beings, right? I mean, that is, that is part of it. And it's a, there is a friction there, at least that I feel. It sounds like you feel, um, I get very, I, I like your comments about different forms of hunting. You have a different relationship with, you know, maybe something you don't do as often. Uh, you have different expectations. And I listened to your, uh, you kind of did a solo episode talking about turkey hunting and sort of your yeah. thoughts around that. And I, I'm just getting into that and I've, I've talked about it here a little bit. So I just, I have, there's like no pressure on my, that I'm putting on myself with that other than I do want to be successful cause I'm just getting started, but totally different relationship with that than going out and rough grouse hunting around here where, I mean, I am, I'm like, I'm really driven out there. Like I like being out there and I enjoy all the things and I will come home in the middle of winter and sit and think fondly back, but there aren't many long, long breaks that I'm taking in the field just to soak it in or, or take it all in. And I, it's, it, I'm just, I'm maybe too focused at times, but. Yeah. And I don't know what that means. You know, I, I don't know yeah. if that's doing an injustice to the, to the experience. I do know that there's, that there's things that I have gotten complacent about, like, and again, this is not something I'm proud of, but increasingly, and I, I've mentioned this, I think, on my podcast a time or two, you know, increasingly I have this this remarkable privilege of being able to go to some neat places, you know, show up, there's someone there that knows the lay of the land, they got great yeah. dogs, it's all like sort of turnkey. I go out there, I shoot some birds, I appreciate the landscape, I appreciate the dog work, I appreciate the guiding, I appreciate the birds. I go home, but really none of it, I didn't earn any of it. Like I was sort of the hired trigger man, you know, like, and, and that increasingly is hard for me. Like I don't, it's hard for me to just, there was a time when it was all just like experience, like come at me and it's like, whoo, this is incredible. Like I'll eat one of those and I'll drink two of those and I'll (laughs) do this and I'll do that. And like, put me on a plane. Sure. I'll go. I'll always say yes. I'll be there, whatever. And And to to increasingly feel 
that that some of those experiences aren't really my I mean they are but they're somewhat superficial like I don't have the relationship with those dogs I don't have the relationship yep. with that landscape I don't I don't know what it feels like on the days when you know I don't know like what I I just don't have the same base of of connection mm-hmm. that yeah. feels increasingly hard to me just in terms of like like how do I justify this in sort of the greater scheme of 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 the value of the experience other than it it was it was awesome and I could to the degree that I could I could appreciate what was being given right but but I didn't work for it you know and that yeah like I said that's getting increasingly challenging at times I think that I think that feeling would be again something that that folks could relate to and you know it's there's nothing quite like the more you put in to the climb, the greater the reward. And yeah, and yeah. if you're if you're offered a shortcut, um, that's a bad word for it. But I, I know exactly what you're what you're getting at. You know, it's yeah. just it's it's not the same as something where you did everything from start to finish. Yeah, and and that's the thing that I think too that I'm really proud of of what I I had to learn on my own and yeah. the way that I went about learning it. But it wasn't fun. <laughs> like, it was hard, you know? It was it, like. Yeah, it wasn't the ideal route you would have. No. And it was like, yeah. there was a lot of failure and there was a lot of like long walks feeling like, what am I doing? I don't even know what I'm doing wrong. Why isn't this happening? Yep. You know, why isn't this working? Where are the birds? What, you know? And um, so, yeah. In you, the moment, that sucks, but. Yeah, but you get something you get something out of it in the long run for sure. And I think that that's I think that to to that end, like I do appreciate that. I think that taught me from an early uh, sort of early stage in in my progression to not expect everything to just say, like come at me easily. So you know, yeah. so like I I think I'm better suited or better prepared for the days that you just don't. Get, you know, work. you don't find anything or you just don't, you know, you, you miss the one shot you got and that's the end of it and whatever or whatever. Like, I don't, I don't, I think there are people who've been, who've come up in a different environment that have higher expectations in some ways than I, than I do. So I'm proud of that too, you know? Yeah. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit uplandguncompany.com. And we're back. Great. For two podcast hosts, 
We've uh, we've had our share of Golly. technical difficulties I, today. Reed. I tell you what, this is like <laughs> this is it's it's on my end. I don't know what's going on. There's like a ah, <laughs> uh, who knows, a glitch. Yeah. These are these are the this is the world we live in. Indeed. Well, we are back. The listeners will. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'll I'll let them know that you jumped away for a meeting. But I did. We're, I had we're to, back in the midst of our I, in-depth conversation. I apologize <laughs> that that duty called for a moment, but uh, but I'm I'm back. Was it classified Orvis business? Classified Orvis business, sort of. But uh, I'll I'll do a teaser. Um, there may be a unique opportunity. Uh, probably shouldn't say anything. I'm not going to say anything. There may be a unique. Oh. Op- okay, I'll put it this way. There may be a unique opportunity in the not too distant future for folks to go hunt wild bob whites on a very um uh, historic southeast uh quail property which is pretty cool so that's going to be something we're going to offer hopefully in the next year or so so we're figuring out the details on that Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Speaking so. of that, do you, uh, I think you've done this for, for the good folks over at shooting sportsman a little bit, like a hosted hunt. Do you have anything like that planned this fall? Yeah. In fact, um, with shooting sportsman, once again, we're going to Greystone castle in Texas, oh, cool. uh, kind of the greater Dallas Fort Worth area. It's, uh, I've actually um, been there. Mingus, Texas. You've been to Greystone? Yeah. I went down there for a Caesar Greeny event. Oh, for the Caesar ago. Greeny event. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. yeah, yeah. So, wait, were you there when it snowed? No, no, it was beautiful okay. when I was there. Yeah, and you were you were not there when I, the year that I was. So yeah, no, I I've not gone to the Caesar Greeny event there, but Greg Carpinello, our gunroom guy, has, and he was there this past year. And I okay. guess the weather it was when would that be right? It was when that that crazy Texas oh weather sure. event happened. Yeah, I heard about that um, on the Rogan podcast. Yeah, yeah, and he just said it was brutal, it was so cold, and like just just hard. I mean, great great destination, but uh, right. But yeah, so we're doing that. Uh, that event is the 8th through the 12th, I think, of December. Okay. Um, and that's that's on orvis.com or Shooting Sports, Sportsman's Advertising. And so I'll be doing that one. And then I have a couple other irons in the fire for future um, for future travel stuff, which actually it, it makes me think that I really need to promote those on the podcast more than I do. It's not for lack of – I just I – just, haven't done it and i need to do that more just to get the word out because it'd be cool to get listeners you know to yeah to be able to come and get some time with them yeah you got to start do you have any hosted stuff are you doing any trips i've I've never done anything it's one of those things you think about like i would like to do that and i would probably be open to some sort of opportunity if something came along but man it's just you just know how schedules and stuff get in the fall and everything is crunched and i'm trying to take advantage of every opportunity i mean I'd love to do everything, but you yeah, but yeah, it's hard. I it's do need to broaden hard. my horizons, and, and that's something I'm trying to like at least like in small doses every year. Like I know I'm going to get my grouse and woodcock hunting in around here, so it's like what what can I do to sort of get out of my comfort zone or do something a little different? So those are things yeah. I'm thinking about. Yeah, there's so much out there, and particularly in the um, boy, particularly in the just in the continental u.s i mean there's so much to do and so many different places to do it and uh yeah it's hard just to make the time and of course it's not as though these trips are quick you know you kind of have to go and really spend some time and get on the ground and whatever else so i thought about asking you this as somebody that has 
been able to experience the the variety of things that you have and i almost i almost did a little audio recording and sent it into your podcast at one point but like knowing that knowing that we share an appreciation for grouse and woodcock hunting the way that we do i have discovered a love of sharptail hunting and so i i do that every year now yeah and absolutely love it specifically for like the stark contrast of i'm chasing grouse but in totally different landscape different right. environment and i just love that about it and all of the things about how sharp tails set up for pointing dogs and just that kind of stuff that aesthetic if you will yep beyond that is there a next is there something else that you would come to mind like knowing like knowing me as somebody that loves rough grouse hunting, like, is there something that you've done that you would say you should try this next kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, I almost hate to say it cause it, it'll sound like a bit of a cliche, but if you, <laughs> I mean, you being a pointing dog guy, um, and sort of the way, the way I understand you to like watching pointing dogs work, yeah. Mern's quail, mm. um, is Mern's quail are very, they're a great bird for a pointing dog and where they live is really beautiful country yep. and it's late season. So you can kind of extend your season. I mean, that's a, that's a hard one to beat, but yep. they're just, they get a lot of pressure and they get a lot of attention, particularly in recent years. So yep. I'm always a little not hesitant. It's just, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, that as much, it's just a limited resource, you know. There's only so yeah. many places with public land that have ferns on them. But I love desert quail hunting. Like, that's probably for me, other than forest grouse. Like, and I love the prairie too. But I, but desert quail is just so cool. The the mm. thing about them is that the uh, gambles quail and and uh, scale quail, scale quail are probably honestly probably my favorite of the desert quail. But they run, so it's like. Yep. You know, you have to, depending what you, depending what you want out of your pointing dogs and right. depending how willing you're feeling to let your pointing dogs do kind of yeah. maybe, maybe change some of their tactics. Um, it can be, it can be hard to adjust, you know, on the fly with them. But, uh, but the desert, I just love the Southwest, like such cool country. I just love it. So that, you've that gone down and hunted with Ryan O'Shaughnessy too, haven't you? Yeah, quite a, quite a bit. Um, okay. well, not quite a bit, a few times. And, uh, He's an absolute gem of a guy, yeah. great dogs, great, just a great host, true yeah. gentleman. Like he's, I've probably said this before, whether, whether I've, I say it to everyone who will listen to me basically, but like <laughs> Ryan O'Shaughnessy is like the guy, and this will sound probably awful and misogynistic and you can scratch it <laughs> if you feel that you should, but like, he's like the guy you don't want your wife to meet because he's like, he's like handsome and super charming. He's from uh, Botswana, South, yeah, well, yeah. sort of South Africa, Botswana. He's so he's like, accent. he's got the accent. He's <laughs> like, he was a former, uh, he played on the Botswana national rugby team. I think so. He's uh. a former professional rugby player, played all over Europe. He's got a PhD in wildlife biology and he's got an MBA. Like he can <laughs> fix anything. He can like, you know, he's just like one of those guys. You're like, Ryan, come he's on. He's a better wing <laughs> shot than you. Yeah. Like he's, he can do everything. And he's like, and, and he's like humble and he's oh yep. God, it's yep. like impossible. But, uh, no, he's an incredible host and just an incredible resource. And his, the ground he has access to in West Texas, far West Texas is, uh, is exceptional. Um, mm. I mean, it, it's obviously cyclical based on weather, but it sounds like they're getting good weather this spring. 
so his his scale quail hunt is i mean i i'd be hard pressed to i've i've rarely seen anything quite like what he has access to down there and just the way he presents it the area is super cool he's amazing he's he's a special guy he's got a special thing yeah that's cool i i I mean, he's he's somebody that I interviewed him. I don't know how long ago, a few years ago, but I can you know I can hear his voice in my head. It kind of he's yeah. got a presence about him. And I've talked to a yeah. few people people that have gone down and and hunted with him, and it's always the same. You just kind of raving raving reviews. So yeah, he's a good dude. Yeah, but. he's awesome. All right, yeah, I'll keep that in mind. I you know I've got a sense about the the Arizona quail thing or the Southwest quail thing. I mean, it's definitely they've had a they've had a spotlight kind of on them in recent years, and I would. I'd love to experience it. It's far, but like you said, it's a it's a season extent extender, and from the outside looking in, the that scenery and stuff. Yeah, the other, you know, the other thing, and this will sound like it'll sound so obnoxious that I'm about to say this, but I'll <laughs> say it anyway. Um, the other bird that you would probably really enjoy, if you ever get a chance to go Perdiz hunting in South America. I've the, heard about it. Yeah. Yeah. They're weird. So they're, they're, um, Tinamu is the, the kind of, uh, common name for, okay. for the, I guess, g- genus. Would that be right? Uh, anyway. Yeah. I think genus is the, the Tinamu. So the, like the ones I've hunted are called spotted Tinamu, I believe. Okay. Then there's the Martinetta is like a bigger one. There's a few, there's several different Tinamu. They're actually the smallest. The smallest relative, direct relative of the ostrich. Really? So, yeah. So they do wow. run, but you don't really see them run. The thing that's amazing about them is that they um, they actually run quite a bit. So you'll see dogs will have to reposition, but they, um, they hide. Like you'll look at a grazed over pasture and a dog on point and you'll be like, there's no way that there's nothing there. Mm. And then a bird will like emerge out of it. So the, the way they... The way they fly is kind of weird. Um, the way they, the the ground they're in, in terms of the 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 pasture or crop field they're in, is just really lean. So you you can't imagine that there's anything there, and there is. So that's a cool bird. Just just again very different. Um, and there's a handful of folks in South America doing probably more than a handful, but but it's somewhat rare to find people that are doing it really well with good pointing dogs. But when you do, it's kind of an old world feeling. Yeah. Um, experience and pretty cool yeah argentina is one that i also i mean i guess kind of look at all of these places fondly from afar but it that seems like a place i would enjoy visiting and it's, it's jerry's amazing. been down there and has told me about uh the pretties and yeah that seems like a for something uh outside of the country that would be very very intriguing yeah you gotta you gotta try to at least once just go just for the whole it's a long way and it's not inexpensive, but just right. the whole experience is, um, it's really special. You know, it's definitely worth, worth the trip. Good wine and good beef down there. That's the thing. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's like the perfect, yeah. It's like, if you like to eat meat and you like to eat cheese and you like to drink wine, <laughs> I mean, it's dangerous. Says the Vermonter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is like the story of my, it's like my perfect happy place down there for sure. Uh, all right, man. Well, 
I'm gonna we'll go kind of rapid fire here. I just I got a no. I got I got plenty. So I apologize, okay. but I, I'm okay. I'm on no time. I'm open for the rest of the day, so we can go all for right. another five hours. If all, right, all right, all right. I'll keep that in mind. But we <laughs> we we obviously we won't dissect the whole book, and I encourage folks to check out Orvis Guide Dolphin Hunting. Um, but I uh, I went through it, and I have to ask about the gun safety. You kind of mentioned it earlier, and uh, you it, it brought back some memories for me because you. You're, you took gun safety. You were older at the time, but you took yeah. gun safety in the dining hall, I believe, of a middle school. Yeah. I, was in, I was in the library of my middle school, yeah. and, and I, I was probably 11, you know, so I was one of the snickering kids. Yeah, you were one that, of the little kids, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, but what uh, do you remember what the, what the trick question you, you swore was on the, on the final exam? Uh, <laughs> man. Well can't remember what i remember most about so i took yeah i took i was in sterling i was in college in the northeast kingdom and i took it in the dining hall of, of the actually it was the college but it was sort of the big room and um this guy marcel massey oh oh i do remember what the what the question was that that was kind of a weird one so this guy marcel massey taught the class and he was a sheep farmer yeah. um he had a, like a sheep dairy and uh he was this french canadian guy and he was pretty funny but he took it very seriously, like took his, his role as the local um, uh, hunter safety teacher very seriously. And uh, I remember a few things that <laughs> this is not funny. I shouldn't laugh. But we watched um, we watched this movie called Sweet Sunday Gone. <laughs> <laughs> that was a uh it was like a film strip it was like you know the yeah. two like real to real things on like a projector and um it was this story i don't even know if there was like narrative like i don't even know if there was audio i feel like maybe there was just like music behind it but it was like these two boys who like learn to shoot and then they like get get like set free from or maybe they like go and take the gun when they're not supposed to and they go like running through <laughs> I, same the, video in my class do you remember do you yes. remember and yes. like and the kid like jumps and like another kid like shoots at the water or something yep. <laughs> like, it's yep. not funny i shouldn't think but i just remember being like this is so ridiculous because i've since done hunter safety um or like not done it but watched my daughter do it and watched my wife do it online and it's like so much more modernized but yeah the yes like clackety clackety clack the sweet sunday gone so i think about that all the time but the question he asked that i still think about he goes uh what was it like what is a safety or what is a safety on the on a gun or something like that and i believe what we were supposed to say well i you know i think i answered or whatever was like it's a I forget how a mechanism that prevents yeah, the gun from firing. Yeah. But his answer and he loved it. And he said it was such dramatic effect. He's always like, it is a mechanical device, which can fail. <laughs> and just like, oh. Okay. So I've always thought about that a mechanical yes. device, which can fail. It's a safety, which is a pretty <laughs> poor definition of a safety. I mean, I guess it's true, but it's a little bit like, well, no. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. that was more so. Yeah. That's funny. You, I, I mean, I imagine that. I guess that video was made. I would never have remembered the title "Sweet Sunday Gone," but I, I remember, and I think of it the same way, kind of laughing, even though it's not funny, and it stuck with me. Obviously, like there's a shooting accident that happens in that in that film, but the way that it was uh, that it was sort of staged and stuff is kind of. I guess it's silly to to think back upon, but um, I I actually just took a 
bow hunter education course online. I'd never done anything like that. And yeah, much more modernized and kind of nice that you can do that from the comfort of your own home these days. Yeah. And sort of at your own pace. I mean, there's a lot, I think particularly for kids, it's, it's, um, it's, uh, you know, yeah, just sort of the ability for them to, to digest it as they do. And, and, uh, kind of chip away at it it's did you have cool. to take a field test with your gun safety do you remember that you know it's funny we didn't um but we did do hunter safety at the office here we gave we offered hunter safety yeah. um several times here at the office early on in my time and we did the the guy that did it here did do a field component where he took people out and shot they shot um you know, 22s and yeah Trying to remember what else. Maybe shotguns. I think they shot shotguns a little bit. So it's cool. I, re- I think that's less and less so as they've tried to remove barriers from getting firearm safety. You, I don't know that you necessarily have to do that anymore, but I remember that too. And I remember the, the one thing I did wrong during my field test was we had to do a fence crossing and we had a, it was like, you know, they had walked you through all this stuff, but I, I put the gun. I don't remember if it was a, I don't think it was a break open gun. Maybe it was, but I put the gun on the ground, but I did not unload it. So I put the gun on the ground and crossed the fence and oh, I, gotcha. I had, I was supposed to unload it. I remember, I always just remember getting that wrong. I still, I passed. But. <laughs> yeah. There's funny. I have, there's a story. My friend, Josh Pincus, who, uh, um, tells a story about being at camp, you know, and he was like, 10 or whatever and they had they had riflery and they got to shoot 22s and they all like lined up like prone shooting at targets with their 22s and it was like a big big deal you kind of had to go through all this preliminary stuff and then you finally got to go on the range you finally got to shoot it was like the first day of of shooting and you had to um i guess the whole group had to wait and shot as a group on the call of like the range master Mm. person and um, so they're all laying there, and the range master's like knows that they're all just like itching, itching, itching to shoot, like they've been waiting and waiting, waiting. And um, he's kind of like taking his time, just sort of torturing these poor kids who like want nothing more than to pull the trigger. And my friend Josh, like, just like was like, I can't, I can't wait. <laughs> and he like he shot his target, like you know, before anyone else had, and got his his uh, permission to shoot removed. So he like had that remote. one precious shot. And that was the end of it <laughs> all summer. Yeah. Anyway, it's funny. There's all sorts of stuff in the book. Is I mean, you break down. I personally enjoyed because this has maybe been something that I've kind of taken a deep dive into, but the breakdown of shotguns, the parts, the components, mm-hmm. shells, you know, chamber, length, shot sizes. I mean, it's not a, it's not a deep, deep dive on that stuff, but a very, very thorough foundation. Obviously, that was something important for you to to let readers understand yeah and i think important for me to understand you know like one of the things that um one of the pieces in there that i'll probably butcher as i try to explain it now because i don't remember all the finer bits and pieces but but was like basically why does you know when you when you shoot a if you you know well let me back up for a moment the things that were important, I think, to explain, because I do feel as though there's a lot of um, not misinformation, but kind of like assumed information that is no longer really relevant. Like, yes. like the, di- you know, saying to someone, 
oh, that, you know, the one that I think about all the time is like, oh, that's a high brass shell. That means that it's this yes, versus I, I like. I wrote that down. I'm glad you brought that you, up. Yeah. It's like, it's like, well, oh, I would never shoot, uh, you know, if, it, if it's a, if you're shooting a sharp tail on the prairie out of distance, you need high brass. And it's like, well, no, like that doesn't really mean anything. Well, it's not that it doesn't mean anything, but it just means different things now. And as the evolution yes. of, of cartridge manufactured, things like choke, like, Oh, you, um, I don't know, you know, chokes, I feel like are generally misunderstood the idea of shooting like, Oh, I would never, I would never shoot a woodcock with a 12 gauge because it's, it's too much too power, bi- too big. Yeah. Too yeah. powerful. You'll blow it yeah. to smithereens. And it's kind of like, yeah. well, not, no, not but necessarily. let me explain like why you sort of think that, you know? So it was kind of stuff like that, that I was trying to not only explain to myself, but also explain to, um, to an audience that, you know, again, understanding shotguns and shooting is like super overwhelming when you start, when people start telling you stuff and everyone's got an opinion and they're filling you full of information that may or may not be true. I just kind of wanted to set, set the record somewhat straight and have it be reviewed. So sort of like, you know, a lot of people read, read that book before yep. um before anything went out but it was things like that i had access to the orvis gunsmiths and people that were in the industry who could look at it and say like oh yeah this is this is sort of um from a physics standpoint this is correct or sort of from a terminology standpoint this is correct so it was helpful for me too just to corroborate some of the the ways that i thought about things and also to get corrected on some ways that i thought about things like there's yep. a piece in there i think there's actually a diagram that describes how really, really the forces that occur when a shotgun shell or cartridge is detonated and this gob of, of, of little balls, you know, little pellets mm-hmm. goes down the barrel, the forces that are, that are acting upon them and sort of how, I think it's in the description of choke, but it's like the radial force. So you have, in essence, you have a, a it's like a swarm of bees. You have this swarm, this little ball of, um, of pellets where as it travels down the barrel, as it travels down the, you know, the, the bore, you know, as it travels down the barrel and gets constricted where the choke happens, right? Cause the, the choke constricts it. It mashes or pushes those pellets tighter together. Then it takes greater energy, sort of the radial force that has to happen to spread them back out as they come out of the, out of the muzzle, like, that's kind of what's happening when your pattern opens up, you know? So it's like, it's not so much that, you know, if you think about it, it's very weird. Why does why does the, why do the pellets spread out at all? Particularly when you're mashing them tighter together when they come out the muzzle. Well, it's, it's that sort of that, that radial force of those, those, that little ball of shot traveling through the air, the, the outer layer of pellets wants to flare off. And so like, chokes just kind of keeping them tighter for longer right yep. like it's pushing them tighter together so they can't get they can't flare off as quickly and then the next layer flares off and the next layer so it's things like that that i was like oh, i never really considered that um but it was interesting for me to 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 sort of see it illustrated or articulated and then to be able to try to translate that to the to the reader so it's kind of a long-winded answer but but yeah it was interesting Page 64, explanation of how the shot column moves through the barrel, choke, and patterns downrange. Ah, yeah, yes, Imagine yeah. That. <laughs> that was, again, I picked that out of there, and 
I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I guess it is a it's a complex thing, and I think if somebody were to just come into it without any knowledge of how a shotgun works, you know, you kind of think, oh, I point a gun at something and I shoot it, and a projectile travels from point A to point B, more rifle-like, you know, would right. be maybe the logical step in your mind. But because it isn't that simple, and because you there aren't these things like you have this thing where less is more, you know, and it's not just I want to push something as fast as I possibly can and push as much of it as I possibly can. There's all of this nuance, which I've, I've done episodes with, you know, Del Whitman and other and other people to try to go into. And, and I the feedback I get from people on that kind of stuff affirms for me that it is it is something that people want a greater understanding of and and I, I sometimes i wonder like why is it why does there seem to be misinformation or old wives tales and i think it's kind of i guess my assumption is that it's just because it is it's such a long history of shotguns and shooting that there's mm. and the information has been you know things have been written and said about shotguns for such a long time that just certain things sort of carry through like the high brass i still you know here we'll hear people say oh i gotta shoot high brass shells it's like what you're actually saying is you you know you want a, a heavier payload higher velocity but it really has nothing to do with the size of the brass on the shell that kind of right, stuff is just right. it kind of persists. yeah that one the other one that and i've been called out on this because i've sort of stumbled into the old just sort of old bad habits of talking yeah. about um like the load like for example you know one ounce load or one mm-hmm. and eighth ounce load or one and a half ounce load like that's not a that's not a powder charge right like so but people the 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 assumption is okay the the load is the thing that and i kind of get it right like if you're if you're pushing a lot of lead the felt recoil is likely going to be greater and you're mm-hmm. probably going to have to push it faster to kind of get the equivalent ballistics out of it. So, you know, everything does kind of correlate, but, but, you know, to say like, Oh uh, yeah, I don't know. A hot load is, is one and a quarter ounces. Or something. Well, no, it's like kind of sort of saying two different things. And, and uh, yeah. so understanding also understanding like what the, you know, all those little things like gauges and mm-hmm. and you know what how did that come to be and all of all of those things uh yeah that was a good good section of the book and would be um definitely worth the price of admission for folks if they were if they're wanting to learn more about that for sure the other thing i i wanted to ask you about was the bird necker you talked about this earlier in that you know getting into hunting like how do i what do i do if i if i knock a bird out of the air but it's not necessarily dead and i think you know anybody that does it enough you'll you know you have to dispatch birds and the method that i tend to fall back on is is basically wrapping the back of the bird's head against the tree sounds you know sounds kind of vulgar on on describing it but i have found that to be when i'm in the woods and i have access to a tree that's like the quickest easiest way for me to dispatch a bird but you talk about that method and a couple other ones yeah so i I remember really distinctly, actually, when I was, when I, was I guess I was, I hadn't started hunting yet, but I was in my late teens, and I met this kid who lives in Montana, who I knew hunted birds, and I remember asking him, because it had been kind of like weighing on my mind, <laughs> like, because yeah. as I knew I wanted to learn how to do this thing, but it was just one of those questions, I was like, I don't know how you, I'd never, at that point, I think I'd killed, like, fish, but I'd never killed anything, like, I didn't know at all how to how to go about it and um i remember asking him i was like well what do you 
if you're grouse hunting and you you shoot a bird but it's not dead, what do you do? And he was like, oh, I just go up to it and like shoot its head off on the ground. And I was sort of like, oh, I guess that's what you do. Which now <laughs> I think about that and I'm like, whoa, what? Yeah. <laughs> like that just seems so, so crazy. But I guess that's how he did it anyway. Um, but yeah, so like for me, there's a few. There's a few. I would say, and I don't know if this is kind of where you want me to go, but just the, the, the different ways of dispatching birds and sort of yeah. how to do it in such a way that it's humane, um, not too grim. Like if you, you know, as, as I think many people have hunted for any amount of time have done, it's, there are those times when you're doing that twirl around thing, holding the bird by the head and twirling around and the head pops off and yep. it's a little bit like, Ugh, ooh, that was a lot. Yeah. Um, so there are, um, there are ways like people will talk about squeezing, you know, squeezing a bird almost sort of from high on the back of their ribs and just suffocating yep. them. I've done that a number of times, but I feel like it takes a long time. I like, agree. And I've, I've heard people say that it doesn't take very long, but I may, I'll assume I'm doing it wrong, but I've had the same experience you have. Yeah. I just haven't had it feel yeah. Anyway, I, I, I just, it just feels, so I've actually come to the, well, to, to go to the bird necker, which I'm surprised you don't see more places at Lion Country Supply. I always sold at night. Mm. That's where I got mine years ago. I actually, I actually don't, I don't really use it anymore. I used it a lot for ducks. Cause what it does is it's, it looks almost like a, um, oh, this little tool, like the wire stripper tool you use for when you're like, uh, yeah, like doing stripping electrical coated or wire. Yeah, yeah electrical yeah. work. It almost looks like that. And you okay. you basically put it over the neck of the bird and it pushes the vertebrae apart. So it actually, you never break the skin, but it breaks the neck. And, and it, yeah. it's a very effective um, kind of low. I've never seen that. But your description of it was good in the book. And I, I had never seen anybody use yeah, that. Yeah. If, if folks are listening and want to see one, they historically always had them at Land Country Supply. And they're not that expensive. And it's just a nice little thing for those for those birds, and I feel as though this happens, there's always those birds that, like, st- sort of stubbornly don't, and they're, obviously, they're trying to survive, yeah. so they just don't, you know, they don't die easily, and I always just, I don't like that feeling, you know, that duck that's flopping around the bottom of the canoe, and you can't, mm-hmm. no matter how many times you're in its neck, you can't kill it, or geese, or whatever, so that, that bird necker is a good one, particularly if you're doing any sort of, um, yeah, I think waterfowl, or pheasants, or whatever, it's just nice to have, um, but I actually, not dissimilar to what you described, I've started more frequently than not just just picking a bird up and, and really aggressively hitting its head against uh, whether it's, you know, I, I've been told um, with some uh, intensity, I should probably call it that, uh, that the gunsmith at Orvis will say, like, you really want to watch out for getting bird blood on your on barrels. Food metal or barrels yeah, yeah because it's, yeah. it's very corrosive um, i've done it but but i've i bang a lot of birds on the barrels of my gun if i <laughs> don't have something else to do so particularly for like i mean like you and i both love to hunt rough grouse and woodcock like they're fairly fragile birds like they, yep. it doesn't take a lot of um uh, for lack of a better way to put it like they don't take a ton of killing whereas a, a pheasant i mean mm. pheasants sometimes are just incredibly tough and uh so yeah so that's that's kind of where i'm at with that but yeah check out that bird necker it's pretty it's pretty cool and if you're doing any sort of um like i said waterfowl goose hunting it's just nice to have yeah and then on to on to gear my comments on that are just that it's 
it's challenging to write a you know a gear section that would be considered timeless mm. um but you know you stuck to basics there and and i i, I kind of like laughing when i'm saying that because i recently reread the new england grouse shooting william harnett yeah. foster and i mean yeah. that book is so so relevant today much of it in there but even in his in his gear and stuff you know he's talking about uh, he's talking about how, you know they're driving station wagons at the time and putting right. dogs in the trunk and, the trunk, and like yeah. <laughs> like the beauty of like a an actual kennel in a car and then i remember him talking about like they would wear pants that like would go down to their knees but then they'd have these socks <laughs> that right. come up and just stuff you don't you don't see today but for the most part in your book you know you kind of stuck to I mean, talking fabrics um, and and like you know, avoiding cotton and and how to basically how to how to dress yourself appropriately. And well, I was going to ask you about gloves because I think you mentioned you get cold hands in the book. Yeah. I don't I yeah. don't know if that's true, but I get that. I I feel like I have. You heard of like Renaud's, like where you yeah, kind of lose, I, lose circulation. I actually do, I'm pretty calm. I I don't I don't know that I would get a diagnosis of that, but I do have like some thyroid stuff and I think it's all related. Like, okay. the, so yeah, my hands get, my hands and feet get cold. Yeah. My hands worse than anything, but, uh, man, it's like, they're always cold. Yeah. That's, that's same for me. And so as I get into later season, it's like when I'm leaving the truck, you lose circulation there. Then my hands are numb. I can barely hold the gun, but I don't, I mean, we have this thing where I, you don't want to wear big bulky gloves. Right. So I pretty much stick to just leather gloves and usually it's just a matter of how long it's going to take before the circulation gets going and I do enough hiking that I'm good. So yeah. I'll wear a thin leather glove pretty much most of the season, but is there any glove that you've come across that is like this is my late season glove and it helps or No. <laughs> um, <laughs> I kind of figured that might be the answer. Yeah, I mean oftentimes if it's really cold I'll wear like a warmer glove or even a mitten on my left hand. On my left hand, my forehand, yeah. yeah. Um, and then I'll wear like a um, a uh, either those leather gloves. Like I still love Orvis. Actually, makes and this is not solely because I mean I wore these long before I worked for Orvis, but that Uplander glove is just a thin leather, yeah, really basic glove. But they seem to wear really well. And what I do is I um I don't know if I wrote about this in the book, but I always uh put like snow seal on them like i water oh yeah yeah and uh and it seems to help i don't know if it helps their durability but they they stay a little bit waterproof and they just seem to last a little bit longer but i'm at work so a warmer glove on the left and then the thin glove on the on the right but uh you know i've heard people say like wear a rubber like a surgical rubber glove underneath and that can keep mm. you a little warmer or things mm. like that and we've built a lot of different gloves to solve for some of the um um like wet or cold or what or combination yeah. but maintain dexterity i find that either those leather gloves are like a almost like a more tactical we do one um that's like a really fitted uh almost like a like what are they called like mechanics or yes. those yep. work gloves you know those, those are of, dell's favorites yeah i mean <laughs> and they're good i mean they're yeah. they're they're sort of stretchy they're form-fitting they they seem to work well generally they're not waterproof i don't think ours are waterproof but uh so I do something like that, but it's a perennial problem for me. And so yeah. oftentimes what I'll do, like if I'm walking and it's really cold, I'll um, hold my gun vertically, you know, muzzles up in my left hand and just try to warm up my right hand yep. somehow. But I mean, I like it gets me. I, I remember I have a vivid recollection of a uh, I've never shot a prairie chicken and we were in South Dakota um, and it was just dumping rain. It was cold. We were soaking wet. The wind was blowing like crazy. And um, 
and my hands were freezing mm-hmm. and a bird got up on my right and it kind of like tried to get up into the into the wind and sort of stalled and I got my gun up in my hand I just couldn't feel it and it was a double trigger gun and I just remember like sl- like being like you know sp- yeah. swatting at the triggers <laughs> yeah. and like miss with both barrels and it was a layup of a shot but I just couldn't feel my hands yeah. Um, yeah so that's yeah that's a problem for me for sure and I don't know that there's a real solution other than just kind of doing what I do which is just yeah. doing my best to, to keep it warm comes with the territory I, I've got a vivid memory of a of a grouse that got away on a December hunt. It was too early in the hunt. I was, it was a cold day and we were, I was, we were walking the edge of this clear cut and the grouse was out there doing the same thing. I would have been trying to do, get some sun and right. and warm up. And this thing flushed in the wide open. And I got one shot off that was too quick. And I honestly couldn't get to the second trigger. Like I just yeah. fumbled it. Cause my, my hands were, so no, that's my excuse at least. But. Yeah, yeah, you gotta have fun of those for sure. <laughs> Definitely. So, kind of wrap up here. Um, the book, folks can check it out. I'll put a link to it in the show notes and stuff. Uh, is there is there somebody? We've I think we've talked at length about like you know kind of who might be interested in it. But was there was there a single singular person? Like, could you put a? Um, could you describe the person that you kind of wrote the book for? Or if that wasn't your motivation that you were working towards like what were you ultimately trying to do with the book yeah no it's a really good question I and mean, basically i wrote it for for me where i had been you yeah. know um but i think that uh i think the person that i wrote it for really is that person that has an inclination to want to learn how to do this thing but then quickly stumbles up against a roadblock. So that roadblock may be I got like guns, super foreign, super scary. Don't even know where to begin. Don't know who to ask questions of. Like I can't, there's no pathway. There's no, and I think the, the way I describe it is like sort of the, the, the entry that sort of the distance or the, the, where you are and where upland hunting is the, the gulf between the two can be like wide and deep. Right. So, so finding that, um, finding the way over some of those those speed bumps or those 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 barriers um the big thing for me for that is uh the person that's kind of like what do i what do i need to do like legally to do this like how do i what do i need to know like where do i take hunter safety how do i even know like how to do that all of those resources are pretty available online things like guns accessing guns if you don't have someone that's going to loan you a gun like how do you Mm. how do you go hunting and so like learning a little bit about okay what gun do i need how do i get one and then how do i find someone who can teach me to use it safely obviously that's that's paramount right like you should be scared if you've never shot a gun before they're scary they hurt people they you know it's just true you've got to treat them respectfully and you've got to get proper education on how to use them and that's vital so like how do i you know, if I'm someone that sort of looks at that and says, I, there's no way I even could begin to figure this out. Well, there are people that can teach you that stuff. There are mentors, there are classes you can take, there are resources out there and available um, to learn. And then the big one, honestly, is like, people say this all the time, like figuring out where to go. You know, it's just like, you, you, if you live in an urban area or, or even a suburban area and, and you want to start bird hunting and you just have, no idea how to begin that 
you don't you don't know you don't you know it doesn't feel as though i can just walk out into the woods and do this thing where do i where do i go that's okay that's that's safe that's that's legal that's going to have birds how do i find them when i'm in there you know so it's all of those things that like i feel as though you can really easily talk yourself out of even trying because it feels like the the barrier of entry is so significant but there are resources available to help you through those through those challenges and um and it shouldn't feel like like i'm i would say by nature like i'm fairly lazy like if things get really hard Path i tend least resistance yeah i just like i just kind of give up you know and i and so to try to to try to encourage people by by way of giving them like this is what you say, like walk into a gun store and this is kind of what you can say mm-hmm. and this yep. is what will like piss someone off and this is what will make someone want to help you like yep. things as simple as that which i feel as though in some ways feels super rudimentary but for me to have someone tell me what exactly i need to go out and look for like if i'm if i've decided i'm gonna buy a first shotgun like and, I, and it's all foreign to me and I, I don't have the time to do the research or I don't know the, the finer points of this versus that versus this versus that. Like I want Nick Larson or I want someone to, to tell me like buy this. Yeah. Trust me. Like you're going to be fine. It's going to do what you want. At some point down the road you might want something different but like yep. this is going to be totally functional for you and this is what you need. So so that was really kind of who I was writing it for. And I think also – um I didn't want to lose sight of, and I think Brian, the Brian Grossmarger, the photographer, did a nice job helping with this. And I hope that there are some bits and pieces. James Daly, who did the illustrations and the layout, um, mm. some of the bits and pieces of writing that are in there. I also didn't want it to be lost that that there is this sort of romantic, aspirational, kind of poetic component to the experience. Like the reality is that you and I are really fortunate. Like we get to, to hunt more than many, many people mm-hmm. for most people who really strongly identify as bird hunters, you know, shotgun people, bird dog people, they get out, I don't know, a few weekends a year. Like yeah. they don't, they, or they go on one trip and that's it. But they identify as that person every day, the whole year through. So, so I wanted to give even those people that have some experience, just something that they could kind of relate to and, and sort of appreciate and sit with and pick up and like flip through the pictures and yeah. you know, whatever else and sort of be like, yeah, this is, this is cool. This is something I get. This feels familiar. This feels like something I want to, I want to do more of, or I appreciate that I guess. You know, so that was kind of the other piece, I guess I'd say. Well, you did a good job, man. And everybody that, that helped you out with it. Um, it came across that way and it's, it's, you know, it's a big, it's a big book. It's like it's almost like book. when I picked it up, I was kind of like intimidated. Like, man, how much read put in here? But there are a lot of photos, and the photos are well placed to, yeah. you know, show the things that you're talking about. I mean, I got that sense as I was going through it. But yeah, Reed's ideal first shotgun recommendation is in there. We'll let folks. We'll let folks yeah. go. I can't remember what I said. Oh, I, think I, I could tell. I, I could tell you. Did I say a did I say a bread of silver vision? I probably said an over and under. Well, 20, with 20 gauge. without saying as much, you said over under twenty gauge with three inch chambers and twenty in twenty eight inch barrels, which I I probably couldn't agree more. So yeah, pretty kind of a do all. Um, to to sort of 
trim away the fat and simplify and distill it down to like don't stress on this decision go get one of these right i think that was a that was a great recommendation yeah that's a pretty pretty solid pretty solid recommendation <laughs> i stand by that one that's good I haven't changed my mind. and here i am shooting like weird weird belgian 16 gauges with all kinds of funny configurations but yeah, yeah anyway that's uh, i was we we could have got into that today but we'll save that for a we'll save that for another one we know uh both our uh our taste in in double guns is is uh such that we could get lost in that but yeah no um, doubt well i gotta ask you though before we wrap yeah. up entirely um talk to me a little bit about the Alpine gun company what's going on what's going on there what's what's happening this summer any events anything like that uh, we're doing a couple, we've done a couple gun fittings. We did one in May with Dell Whitman at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. We've got another one coming up in August. Um, those are kind of the two on the calendar. Actually, this weekend is an event that I, this will be, this podcast will air after this, but the great Northern side-by-side shoot in Medford, Wisconsin. I've never oh, cool. been there. Yep. Dell's going to be there and he's doing a couple fittings for us while he's there. Um, everything i've heard about it looks like an event that i would love to attend and i'm not all that far away but i just uh i can't get there this weekend but no other than that things are going great i i was just when you were on your meeting i was sending some emails to italy and talking to the folks over there they're building lots of guns and um it's been a really uh fun uh thing to involve in my day-to-day and i love uh love talking to customers that a lot of them listen to the podcast and we talk shotguns and double guns and yeah it's a blast that's awesome. And I think, is Lars Jacob doing some fittings for you too? He did. Yep, yeah. he did. Um, we sent a few people out his way, um, and I think Jerry flew him down to Arizona too to do some fitting. So, yeah, we've been trying to – that's a big part of like sort of what we can do with um, custom stock dimensions is trying to connect people with gun fitters. And as you know, these guys are – they're few and far between. Um, yeah. they're, they're really good ones, and as much as we can, we try to connect with them and send people to them. So. Yeah, that's awesome. No, I have yet to. I don't think I've seen one of your guns in person yet, but I'm looking forward to at some point. Um, and uh, certainly talking to Dell a lot about them. So that's yeah, that's, that's cool. But um, yeah, well, good to hear. I love uh, I love hearing hearing that that's going well. That's awesome. Does Orvis have anything new in the in the gun department coming out? Great question. Um, sort of, kind of, not really. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, you know, for us, where I would say what being being somewhat um, thoughtful about what I say, there's going to be a uh, so our, our Fabarm D2 or Fabarm D2, um, as as many people know, as you know, of course, like the the supply chain and 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 cost of yeah. goods for guns has has been tricky over the last few years. They're just getting Crazy. expensive to source parts. They're Getting the parts and then getting the guns here has been challenging. Um, we've been fairly lucky, as you probably have too. Like some of the some of the stuff coming out of Italy is still pretty pretty prompt, so that's good. So we have a couple. We have the Fabarm G two that's that's kind of the mainstay of our of our signature kind of branded guns. Um, doing a few different configurations in that, which are somewhat unique. Uh, you know, sort of more more quail centric or, or small bore stuff um coming out we have the heritage well what do we call it the heritage i think that which is the fab arm side by side yes um then we have uh another I saw, fab that arm. In, 
was it shooting sports shooting sportsman perhaps, i think did a yeah, review yeah. you know really not terribly dissimilar from the autumn the fat right. autumn but um it's got the black has, finish on I, I thought it looked really cool yeah it looks a little different um and then we have some guns a lower price point gun from Fabarm coming in and i'm blanking on the name of it but that's going to mm-hmm. be coming in around really competitive with that like basically with the silver pigeon or with the uh browning um i guess some of the some of the satori so like that is like 2250 or thereabouts um is kind of like what our entry level gun looks like i would love to figure out again i don't want to like divulge too much and get myself in trouble but (laughs) the i miss the days when we had um uh, more of a unique side-by-side offering that wasn't yeah. prohibitively expensive. And um, and I think this is a niche that you all are filling really well. It's like finding a bespoke or, or custom side-by-side for not a ton of money is really, really hard. And uh, yeah. um, and the Spanish trade, yep. really where they more or less phased out. I mean, Kinda you can still... Off, yeah, yeah, they, yeah, you know, a lot of those big companies went out of business. The ones that are still... That are still um, uh, making guns, you know, what was 15 years ago a, a $3,500 custom ish side by side is now a $13,000 gun. So you, yep. you know, the it's hard to play in that space. I mean, then you're that's that's a lot of money for a it lot is. of people. And, yes. uh, and so, um, yeah, so it's, it's too bad that like side by sides aren't. There's not more going on in the side by side space, I guess, is what I would say. And if you think yeah. about it, like, who's really making them? Uh, Italy's making some, uh, you yeah. know, at, at the sort of that lower, that like sub $15,000 mark. Yeah. Italy's making some. I guess Connecticut Shotgun is sort of making some. Is yeah, kind anyone of. Else? Yeah. I know Turkey, I guess, but other than that, yeah. there's really not a lot going on. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's just sort of, sort of interesting the ebbs and flows of what the customer wants exactly yeah um i did want to ask you are you are you a journaling guy like are you uh you pulling out pen and paper after every hunt and keeping a hunting log hunting journal at all no and it's funny like i should um (laughs) but i i have a weird relationship with that idea uh there have been times in my life when i've journaled on like trips certain trips and stuff but um yeah but I don't, and I'm also really awful at taking photos. Like I, I'm the world's worst photographer for one. Like, like, like you'd be hard pressed to take as bad pictures as I take. <laughs> and uh, the other thing is, I don't really like to take pictures. Like, I don't, I, I just don't. It doesn't occur to me. I don't, I don't want to do it. And I really love great photography. Like, right, you know, we're doing stuff with Brian. Like, I love looking at his photos. But for some reason, I feel as though if I like, this is such flawed thinking, but if I, if I like stop and take a photo or if I like stop and write about something or if I try to capture it, I sort of like belittle, I don't know why I think that way. I like, it's like I'm taking something away from the experience that it should just resonate for me in the way it does. But but that's stupid. Like I know that's dumb, <laughs> and yet yeah, I, I still I know, what, I know what you're getting at, though. It's it's that resistance and and not wanting to yeah, not wanting to muddy muddy things up. And it's just in that moment, you don't want to spoil that. And and the journaling is one of those things where it, I think at I don't do it much, and I want to. I have a desire to, but I can't overcome right. this resistance. 
And I think it's because it's kind of painful at the time and you won't really appreciate it until it's 10 years later and you're looking back on this stuff. Yeah. And I feel like too, that I, um, this will sound really stupid and it is stupid, but like, I kind of don't want to like stuff like that. I mean, I suppose if it was more like storytelling, it would be different. Cause I do, I am proud of the stuff that I've written and the stories I've written and sort of the reflections I've had. And I'm, I'm appreciative that that stuff will outlast me and that there's a way that my kids will be able to, the book's a good example. Like I hope that a great grandkid of mine at some point, you know, picks that up and whether they're in hunting or not, are sort of like, Oh, this guy was my great grandfather wrote this. This is like his, his voice, you know, here. And this is a picture of him. You know, to me, that's, that's kind of cool. Conversely, I think a lot about this in sort of a, weirdly I don't know what the word would be just sort of I I think a lot about like my kid (laughs) this sounds so messed up I'm sorry (laughs) but like I think a lot about the things that I'll leave behind that I don't want my kids or my family or whatever to feel like burdened by that like oh this meant a lot to him we can't throw it away Mm. because look he wrote down like all this stuff that doesn't mean a thing to me and I do not care about, but I have to think it was precious and therefore I have to kind of carry it out. I don't know. It's like a weird, like I was talking to a friend. I just, we did a long drive, drove, was traveling the last couple of days in down in Pennsylvania or driving home yesterday. And I was thinking about like the guns that I have Mm. that are really meaningful to me and have stories that I think are, are interesting. But like when I'm gone, if my kids aren't into them and like their kids or whatever aren't into them, like sell them, like just get rid of them. Like yeah. I don't, yeah. don't. And it's sad to me to even think that way. Cause I want them to be precious to someone else. But like, I don't know. Like I almost, it's almost like self self protection. It's like, I don't want to invest too much in my God, that sounds awful too. I don't know. It's a weird one. It's like a. Uh, I think I'm. I think I'm. I'm following you. And I mean, stuff too. Like stuff weighs on you. You know, yeah. mentally. And so, if it's, you know, again, if something doesn't give you joy, like that double gun gives me joy and gives you joy personally, you know, it can just kind of be a burden to somebody right. else. Exactly like you're saying. So. Yeah, I mean, I, sometimes I think about it like, like one day, you know, when I'm old and hopefully get to be old and and like can't really do the thing anymore i kind of i have this idea and i don't know if i'll actually do it but i would kind of love just to have like you know if i met a guy like you give stuff away just be like here take this like it it did the value that it afforded me was more than i paid for it and now like it can do that for someone else sure like go go play with it like i don't know i feel like that's such a nice I, I wish more people did stuff like that because I think it, I think it, in the end, like, sure, if my kids can sell whatever I leave them and go buy themselves something they're into, like, that's great. But I also, right. you know, when someone gives you something that was valuable to them and they know you'll appreciate it, like, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so I, I've heard of that type of thing happening among, you know, bird hunters. And, and I guess I would, I haven't thought a ton about it, but I, I would like to be in a position to perhaps do that as well you know outside yeah, of outside yeah. of my you know my two sons if the, again like you're saying like great if they love it but if not somebody else probably would or hopefully would 
Yeah, yeah, you'd yeah. have to you'd have to hope so anyway. So yeah. Well, Orvis Guide to Upland Hunting available. Where's the best place for people to go check it out? Your website? Um, yeah, that links, I think, to Amazon. Amazon has it. Okay. Uh, you can buy it at Orvis. It's going to be in the Orvis catalog again this fall. Um, okay. Yeah, and, and go, you know, by all means, um, you know, not to, to do the hard sell, but, but uh, I would love to think that it stays in print. So, yeah. <laughs> so buy two, buy three. Um, <laughs> buy one for a friend. Of, buy one for yeah, somebody right. getting started. Keep it, keep it alive. But, um, but if it doesn't, uh, you know, it's always going to, it's going it, to, it'll live on to the degree that it lives on. And, and there's always an opportunity for me to kind of reinvigorate it at some point and bring it back if it does go away. But, uh, but yeah, it's weird. It's like when you think about a book, the way I think about books is that they, they kind of live on, but mm-hmm. you know, they, they go out of print. There's been a lot of books written over the yeah the course of human history that are no longer. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, are yeah. you, uh, are you reading anything at the moment that, that you're like, whether it's hunting related or not, but yeah, I'll show something? you. Yeah. I just pull out my little knapsack right here. Um, I have in my bag, what do I have? I have, Courtesy of our friend Matt Mates, I'm reading Slowly Chipping Away at Off to the Side by Jim Harrison. Oh, lovely. Um, which is kind of a kind of a memoir. Um, I've been doing the uh, Audible thing quite a bit lately yep. while I'm driving or mowing the lawn or whatever. So I, I'm And I'm a rereader, like particularly with Audible because I feel like I don't digest it in the same way that I, yeah. that I do when I'm actually picking up a book. Um, so I'm... On like second or third time through uh, Gunfight by Ryan Bussey, um, which is a great um, insight into the gun industry, which, you know, I just feel like being being in the gun industry, just sort of understanding some of the different perspectives on it and how it works is just valuable yeah. intel. Um, but that's that's sort of a uh, an interesting book. Um trying to think what else i was reading oh you know what i you know what i've been reading again which is a great book for folks who haven't read it my it's so funny my daughter and i my other daughter and i share a lot of i would say that we share a lot of she's not into the sporting work but like from a literature standpoint reading she and i read a lot of the same stuff and um and we've we have like significant divergence on like a couple books so (laughs) one is uh she had to read um catcher in the rye for school and I was so excited. I was like, oh, it's when I've read that book so many times. I love it so much. And she was like, she's like, I don't get it. Like, I don't, this is weird. I'm not into this book at all. And I was like, what are you talking about? Holden Caulfield? Like, so good. And uh, she just wasn't feeling it. But the other one that she was not feeling that I'm rereading now, because, and I'll tell you why in a second, is um, Killers of the Flower Moon by um, Jeffrey. Hold on. Let me tell you. One sec. And I'll tell you why it's worth reading. In just a moment, it is "Killers of the Flower Moon" by David David Gran. So, it's actually going to come out as a as a feature movie that really? I think Leonardo DiCaprio and it's like all these famous major people. Yeah. But the story is the story of the the founding or the early evolution of the FBI. But what it revolves around is um, back in the twenties. 20s teens and 20s um the osage people who lived in in and around pahaska oklahoma or were relocated to pahaska oklahoma were given tribal land by the u.s government that it's just so happened had incredible rich oil um mm-hmm. there's just a ton of oil on their on 
lands that was owned by the Osage, they very quickly became like the wealthiest people in arguably like the world, like very quickly. But there was this cultural thing happening where, you know, these were people who one generation earlier were like the idea of sort of currency in that way, like money in the sort of American Western sense of money was like totally foreign. So there was this horrific period of time wherein people were essentially marrying and I'm butchering the, the facts of the story, but or facts of history, but basically white people marrying into the Osage tribe to get their head rights, their mineral rights. And then there was a series of murders wherein like the spouses, the family members would wind up dead. And then Mm. the, the white spouse would accumulate these head rights. And, and it was, the investigation of these this series of murders that led to the to the um, early evolution of the um, of the FBI. However, what's really interesting to me is that Pawhuska, where this all happened, is where Ronnie Smith Kennels is now. And mm-hmm. so, so having spent a lot of time with Ronnie Smith and Susanna Love out in Oklahoma, yep. and being really fascinated in writing the book with them, actually about the early history of like why were there why was bird hunting and why were bird dogs like a big deal in Oklahoma? And basically it was because back in those, you know, teens, twenties, thirties, when these wildcatters were getting fabulously wealthy and oil in Oklahoma, where kind of that first oil boom really happened, you know, all these people, all these wealthy, you know, industrial soil men were coming from, from places where they had historically hunted in South Georgia or hunted in, you know, kind of, pointing dogs and fancy horses and doing this yeah. whole horseback thing. And then there was this rich um, quail and prairie chicken and whatnot resource out in, in Oklahoma that all of a sudden was like, oh, well, we want this here too. And so there's just kind of an interesting correlation there. But uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, really, really good book. So that's the other thing I'm reading right now. Yeah. You were just down there too, weren't you? Yeah, I was there la- two weekend, two weekends ago? Two weekends ago for a for a weekend event, which um, which was awesome and did a whole tour. There's a again somewhat off the subject but there's a um, museum i believe the place is called Woolerock. it was the sort of lodge resort of um the fellow that that started phillips petroleum phillips 66 oh. whatever the I forget his name frank phillips i believe um but he built a museum that's got unbelievable collections of uh like native american artifacts artwork all this all this stuff, just incredible paintings, incredible bronzes. And then they have a firearms collection. That's Mm. as, I mean, it's just unbelievable what's in this kind of off the beaten path museum in Tosca, Oklahoma, but uh, a really, really cool place. So if anyone ever gets down that way or has cause to, it's the whole area is just so rich in history from a bird hunter standpoint, from a bird dog standpoint, um, from a human history standpoint, American history standpoint, just a lot there. So kind of yeah. overlooked but uh but pretty fascinating there was one other book i wanted to ask you about and i heard you talk about it with this might have been a year ago with bob st pierre and chad love when you guys were doing a podcast you were kind of talking about books that had hunting ties and there's some book that was made into a show or a movie about a chucker hunter i'm reading it, i'm actually reading that too rereading okay. that having not read it in a long time yeah it's called east of the mountains by uh David Gutterson, who wrote Snow Falling on Cedars, I believe. That's um, right. Yep. And it's uh, it's funny you bring that up because I, I was mowing the lawn the other day and I like, got that one on Audible because <laughs> I read it years ago. And it's one of those books that like 
really stuck with me, like little mm. vivid pieces of it, like yeah. just really resonated with me. And in fact, um, if you've ever listened to, uh, so it's, it's about this guy that grew up in Eastern or Eastern Oregon, I believe, um, or Eastern Washington, Eastern Oregon, I think, uh, Maybe Washington. I can't recall. One of the two. But anyway, he grew up in orchard country where there were like fruit pickers, sort of itinerant seasonal fruit pickers would come through and pick cherries and peaches and apples and everything else. And he, his family had an orchard and he grew up and, and met a woman, fell in love and then, you know, had a career as a doctor. And it's sort of a reflection on his life as he's meditating on on a diagnosis of terminal cancer and thinking mm. about sort of how he's going to end things and, and um, not to give too much away, but his, his, his vision or his plan to um, have this last bird hunt and kill himself that goes like totally awry. Um, it, it's funny because that story kind of popped up for me in a couple different places. Not that it was referenced per se, but it sort of has relevance to, um, there's a great story that I think I talk about in that um, that podcast as well called Flight by Thomas McGuane that's about two guys that are – one guy's got terminal cancer. They're out Sharptail hunting in Montana, and he goes into – I don't know if you remember this story, but it's like – It's a really kind of gut-wrenching story, but he – they're out hunting. Dogs go on point after they've kind of talked and had lunch. The the guy with cancer goes into into the coulee to, to – um, to flush the birds and basically never, uh, you know, I don't want to give away the story, but it's, it's really beautiful yeah. kind of, but also just as Thomas McGuane stuff is kind of like really twists you right up about, you know, knowing that you're dying and how you kind of, what you do with your last days in the end of life. Um, yeah. Then there's also a song about, um, do you listen to Gillian Welch at all? Do you know Gillian Welch? I, the name is ringing a bell, but I don't know. She, Gillian Welch is like a, she's actually from LA, but she's sort of an app, like Appalachian kind of Americana female vocalist. Um, Musician, right? Somebody yeah. told me about her. Yeah. Yeah. She, so she's, she and her, I don't know if they're like life partners or just music partners, mm-hmm. David Rawlings, they do a lot of stuff and she's written, it's a lot of Americana. It's kind of like, yep. uh, I don't know how to describe it other than that, but she, um, there's a song called uh, One More Dollar or something, and it's about picking fruit and this guy that's, like, you know, picking fruit in that in that Northwest, you know, scene, sort of seasonal. And they have a day, there's a frost on the on the trees so that mm. everyone, like, goes to the bar and he bets his... He's got, like, a couple, you know, a week left of work until he's made enough money to go home and, like, have his next thing and yeah. he they go down to the bar because there's frost on the trees and he like bets his summer's wages on like a hand of poker and loses it all and then it's <laughs> yeah, it's just like but it's very similar sort of talking about those itinerant fruit pickers in east of the mountains but i think i want to i don't know what happened it was um tom scarrett was in it and i haven't like heard much about it but it's a really cool book if folks are looking for a book it's a love story in a sense it's a it's a memoir, kind of. It's a novel. It's 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 really beautiful. Well, we were all over the place today, Reed, but I uh, sure were. Yeah, well yeah. Done. <laughs> I hope folks feel like they they got to know you a little bit better now, and they can they can head over and check out your work on the Orvis Hunting and Shooting podcast. And what's your website again? 
Uh, just read Bryant.com. So it's R-E-I-D-B-R-Y-A-N-T.com. And, uh, yeah, there's some articles there. There's some links to the podcast. There's the books around there and some other odds and ends. But, uh, yeah, totally appreciate it. I, you know, I, I'm sure that I'm going to get blasted on, on some some platform for talking too much today. But it's always it's always a pleasure talking to you. You bring out my, you bring out my chattiness, and, uh, and I, <laughs> I just enjoy the, the opportunity to kind of, like, reflect with you too on on some stuff that you know i think both of us in a lot of ways you and i have both um kind of entered this industry or this workplace you know together like sort of along the same timeline and and uh you're obviously younger than i am but um but you know it's it's been a journey and we sort of watched each other grow and it's really just been a pleasure to to see your successes and and um to kind of keep having these moments of, of being in touch. So we'll have to get you on mine. Got to get you on my podcast here in the next little bit. I got to schedule that. That'd be fun. Anytime, man, you say the word. I, I appreciate that. And, uh, I am enjoying your work. You're, you're writing all over the place. I'm reading you in gun dog and shooting sportsmen. And- oh, I'm exhausted. It's too much. <laughs> I, have to, I have to go home and write a gun dog piece and, uh, and, <laughs> and a copyright piece this <laughs> afternoon. So killing me. Well, Keep up the great work, Reed. Thank you for taking the time to come on and chat with me. Uh, uh, like I said, feeling is mutual. It's uh, it's it's always good to catch up. I wish you the best of luck this fall, and hopefully our paths will cross again soon, my friend. Yeah, love it. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. That does it for this episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt and Final Rise. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, and share, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.